Hi everyone, David here, and welcome to Heddle's Blowout, our new podcast. If you still recognize my voice, uh, thank you for being one of our early listeners. Uh, I tried our first experiment in podcasting in 2014 when the medium was still in its infancy, and uh, back then... I carted around this big USB microphone to record with industry folks, and uh, a lot of the interviews turned out great, but the audio quality had some ups and downs, um, especially that one where it sounded like a basketball was bouncing in the microphone the entire episode. But uh, as you may have noticed, we're back, and I hope for us to be back a lot more regularly than we ever were before. So the old format was just a straight-up interview show. I was a podcasting Luddite, and I just set the mic up between me and whoever I was interviewing and then put that online when it was over. This show is going to have two parts, an interview with an industry person like before, but also a discussion with a Heddles person about some of the stuff that we've been publishing. So today's episode is going to start with me and our writer, Albert Muskies, who's been covering the retail and small business beat since coronavirus started. And we're going to get you up to speed on everything that's happened in the Heddles world since then. Uh, after, I've got a long interview with Morsen Sajid, who is one of the most fascinating people in our little world. Uh, he's designed for some of the biggest names around, uh, made some of the most intense and forward-thinking genes under his own label, Endrime. And he's a walking indigo encyclopedia teaching denim and fashion universities all over the world. Uh, also... Well, we're not advertising on here at the moment, so here's my quick little plug to tell you to visit the Heddle Shop, where we've got selections from Telesen, Left Field, Battenware, Tanner Goods, Winter Session, many more, and we're about to put up a shipment of these super cool sandals from Waltzing Matilda. They're a tiny brand uh, making everything in-house in Maine out of Horween leather and, uh, believe it or not, leftover Birkenstock soles. I think they're incredible, and you should go have a, uh, to our site to have a look at them. Uh, and you can get 10% off whatever you order with the code BLOWOUT, just like the name. So I hope you like what we've put together here, and I hope you stick around as my semi-monotone is going to be coming at you weekly for the near future. Okay, so we're here with our writer, uh, Albert Muskies, who's been heading up our COVID and uh, like retail report and just sort of how the industry has been experiencing the fallout of all these shutdowns and new regulation changes and uh, all the ripple effects that's been having. So, uh, Albert, how is it out there? It, it seems bad. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me, David. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, the situation has been you know, bleak to say the least. And I think the frustrating thing I've noticed in my reporting is uh, even now we're still waiting for the other shoe to drop. There's a lot of information that that we still don't have. And even we're, we've been checking in with our retailers, we've been checking in with, you know, bigger brands. And it's still, everything's kind of a developing story. Things are still in flux. And we don't have a lot of satisfying answers, unfortunately, as to how this is, how this is all going to affect our, our universe of retail and fashion. Yeah. So the, the worst is yet to come is sort of the, the vibe that I've been feeling as well. And that like a lot of this hasn't really hit. Um, is that your experience or like your prediction here as well? 
I, I do feel similarly. I feel like we're watching these kind of the large bankruptcies, bankruptcies we've been seeing, for example, are kind of these slow moving train wrecks. And a lot of the shutdowns we've seen in bankruptcies in the COVID era are really uh, their roots are based, you know, long before the virus ever, you know, hit our shores. So I think we're still definitely waiting to see how this period, you know, affects our, our niche. So yeah, it's all, it's all slow moving. Yeah. So like speaking of a few of those bankruptcies, uh, you've covered the J crew bankruptcy, JC Penny bankruptcy, Brooks brothers, closing down factories, uh, Gitman. We just heard this week is closing their factory in Pennsylvania. Um, and there've been a few other, uh, big waves chain, like, uh, and yeah, uh, big problems with a lot of these major, like stalwart organizations that have been around for decades. Um, so maybe we just start with J crew. Cause that was one of the earliest ones. And yeah, as you said that they're just sort of all house of cards that were set up for failure before this even started. And this just happened to be the, you know, one slight gust of wind that toppled everything down. Um, yeah. uh, J crew, uh, what happened there exactly? So the the J Crew situation um, was ended up being a very complex, uh, as you said, house of cards with um, the various uh, private equity buyouts that had happened over the over the company's history. Um, kind of the last straw has in the last um, nine or so years. Um, the company, so right when they declared bankruptcy, they had something like $3 billion. Um, let me check that figure. I mean, several billion dollars in debt. Um, and just in debt outstanding, just in debt. And I mean, oh. in our, what I've been noticing is that, you know, a lot of reports say that some American or most American companies have like, you know, seven times their debt is seven times the profit they make in a year. So uh, very unsustainable long-term, but uh, J. Crew had been uh, had been uh, bought for a three billion leveraged buyout uh, by a private equity firm, and so this private equity firm was kind of looting J. Crew. They were forcing them to, you know, take out even more exorbitant loans to to pay off their dividend payments, um, and this led to this led to. J Crew being so ridden with debt that they couldn't get any more loans. So they did this kind of fancy footwork where they transferred all of their intellectual property. So all of the J Crew brands, basically everything that makes J Crew um, a recognizable entity. Like and their logo, their label, their catalogs, their like Yeah, their sub brands, really everything that that they have. And they transferred mm-hmm. it to uh, an unrestricted uh, Cayman Islands subsidiary. So they had all this debt and they had all these creditors and, um, and uh, you know, who felt rightfully screwed over um, because they were funding an operation, a deeply indebted operation that essentially had none of the elements that made it a brand. So hmm. J crew like wasn't J crew. They were renting the right to be J crew from this other company that they basically sold their soul to. Exactly. And then using that 
that second that Cayman Island subsidiary that had all of those J Crew brands, they then took out a three hundred million dollar loan, um, which wasn't used to pay off their current debt, but was used to pay off their their far older debt that um, basically to pay off that first private equity firm that had bought them out in two thousand eleven. Um, and parad- and strangely, that this this even though this move caused a lot of um, concern among you know J Crew's lenders, um, it ultimately did increase consumer confidence. I think people thought that this might be the way that J Crew kind of regains a foothold. Um, but then before like every mall in America was uh-huh. uh, closed for multiple months, right? And. Uh. I've, you know, this is kind of a larger concern. Um, uh, uh, this is something called a, a CLO, a collateralized loan obligation. It's kind of an unregulated loan against some kind of collateral. In this case, you know, all of J. Crew's identity, um, and a lot of these loans happen through private equity. They're non-bank loans, so it's hard for American regulators to get an idea of you know, how many of these loans exist, how many, and kind of to whom they are owed. And mm-hmm. on top of that, it's a way for a company like J. Crew that is so obscenely loaded with debt in kind of every facet of their operation. It's a way for them to get additional loans. It's just, it's, you know, it's kind of spectacular. And so beyond my, the, the, the money and the, everything is so beyond my scope. Um, and I think, you know, in this context, it's kind of easy to see how I think J. Crew kind of lost sight of what they were doing a little bit. Um, mm-hmm, that it seemed like a race to just continue to make payments on this, that they got themselves into a corner that they couldn't, you know, sell enough Ludlow suits to get out of. Exactly. And, you know, I think I think what's a little frustrating for I think some people pushed back. I think I was critical of J. Crew and J. Crew's kind of identity crisis, and I did get some pushback on that from some of my readers, and specifically my mom. My mom told me I was too critical <laughs> of J. Crew. Um, but, uh, that uh, the kind of clothes that they were making, and the I don't know brand identity that they had, or I guess brand identity they were leasing from themselves. Yes, I mean, I just feel like you know, to J. Crew is. I'm not really sure where that, like what space they were occupying, you know, of late, you know, they had this reputation for this kind of prep thing and for this, you know, the high, kind of the highest quality stuff that you could get in the mall. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, I just, I didn't see, you know, in comparison to the brands that we work with every day and these really, you know, conscientious companies that are trying their best to, you know, you know, manufacture as ethically as possible and as creatively as possible. And I feel like J. Crew is trying to kind of espouse that feeling and just, you know, still being a, a big mall brand. Um, mm-hmm. They were trying to like straddle both worlds because it was a thing that you know, in the late 2000s, early 2010s, I feel like J. Crew was a huge influence on a lot of people in introducing them to smaller, you know, much more ethical brands than mm-hmm. J. Crew, um, is like you. I think uh, J. Crew is the only place where you could buy Alden like nationwide. Mm-hmm. And same with like Red Wing, and they had New Balance made in USA, and they had 
like anonymousism socks and they had like Macintosh, you know, like raincoats. Their their buys for their like non J Crew brands were really, really good. You know, like it was sort of like um, you know, like a precursor to Union Made, or I forget when Union Made opened. Um but yeah, it it had that same sort of vibe to it, which I, I guess they were trying to use to sort of filter down to the rest of the J. Crew line. That like, okay, we are not necessarily these um, high end brands that we're bringing in, but maybe we can like take a little bit of that shine and put it on our you know made in China Oxfords, which were still not terrible. Like I had some of their Oxfords in college that I wore for like four or five years before the collars fell off. No, I mean you're right. I I I really I really remember when I was trying to kind of figure out what I liked in style and I felt like I'd always gravitate towards J Crew because they did have that I the one that I would go to had the section where you could see Red Wings in person and you could see, you know, maybe one or two pairs of Aldens and they had Japanese selvage jeans and um you know, I'll you know, uh, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to turn up my nose at like a J Crew sweater I get for a, you know a birthday present or something. Yeah. Um, they do good work, but I just you know I I can see in the context of just yeah this insane debt, all of this kind of deceptive financial footwork they were doing with their creditors, and just how you know I think J Crew like a lot of the brands that we're seeing and we'll talk about you know the larger brands we'll talk about have just we're just so rattled by the super, super cheap fast fashion companies that they're not, that they are trying to straddle, as you said, this kind of high end or introductory high end classy prep thing with like the Uber cheap race to the bottom companies. Yeah. It's like, what does a J crew uh, shirt cost like 70 or 80 bucks. And in comparison to like an H and M one, that's maybe 30, like the, Quality difference is there, but like, is it more than twice that for the average consumer? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're someone that's sort of swimming in our waters of quality, like, what's to stop you from just spending, you know, an extra fifty bucks and getting a like Gitman on sale or a Corridor or something else equivalent? Exactly. Oh, they're just sort of caught there with nothing much to do. But it is a shame because, like, I still have a. J. Crew uh, corduroy sport coat that I'm looking at on my clothing rack right now <laughs> that I bought when I was like 14 and I still wear. Yeah. Uh, I have a pair of spring court shoes that I bought on sale for $10 at a J. Crew outlet. Mm-hmm. Um, that like, yeah, where else are you going to buy spring courts? This like obscure French uh, like sneaker brand that I guess Frank Moichens or someone just thought that like, it was a good idea to bring it in. Yeah, um, I mean... My in college, yeah, I have, I have like a couple of J. Crew sweaters that I just wore to to tatters, you know. In you know when I went to an East Coast college that that required a sweater. Um, I mean, I have a I have fond a fond memory for for their stuff. I just I do feel like just looking at their material and just reading kind of the criticisms that have been leveled against them of late. That it just. Eh. It just feels like it's not, it hasn't pinned down what it wants to be. That's just mm-hmm. the sense that I have. That was my critique, at least. Um, so is there a way forward with for J. Crew with you know, $3 billion plus probably in debt right now? Is there still 
some value in that name and that product. And uh, I don't know, just throw the whole thing out seems like a bit of a waste. But with that much stapled to the, uh, that much liability stapled to the the brand, like, is there a way forward? Uh, it's it's really hard to tell, and I think that's that's what we're going to have to keep an eye out for. Um, they would have taken out you know a loan to get them through you know this restructuring period if that's what they intend to do. But there's always going to be some faction um, that will probably you know propose liquidation. Um, mm. So it's just, I mean, it's, we've seen this with a lot of our, our bankrupt companies. I mean, we'll talk about, you know, JCPenney in a minute, but you know, it's how, how these internal debates unfold will, you know, will affect what ultimately J crew is. And then it's just, it's hard to see a way forward when they're just burdened with so much debt. And I don't know. I don't know how they how they can spin out of this or how I mean in my perfect world I say you know J crew does everything smaller and better and kind of more focused you know if they mm-hmm. could if they had the luxury to take a moment and kind of distance themselves from their fast fashion competition and focus on those you know high quality pieces that we have that you and I have both bought and cherished and have lasted us for years um but it feels like they're too big now to to change that direction it does feel and i think they would have to do something pretty radical and i just don't see that i don't think that they have the the room to maneuver just with the the burden and i don't know how i don't know how restructuring is going to work when essentially what that which makes you know j crew j crew is you know in a foreign cayman islands subsidiary um so and i know that a lot of the people involved you know a lot of their creditors were um really upset by that move um oh they didn't know that this was happening right yeah they 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 sued when they found out and they tried to prevent it but ultimately they they you know it was unsuccessful on their part Um, so yeah, it was kind of behind some of their, it was behind some people's backs. And, um, I think that those people feel like the J crew that they are a part of now is essentially worthless is essentially a shell. And, um, I mean, I I obviously can't speak for them, but I know that there will be some, uh, bitterness, uh, that we'll probably see as they try to negotiate their next steps. Um, so time will tell whether uh, people will be able to buy more kill shots and 484 slim denim in the future. But because uh, moving to the other end of the mall that we have JCPenney, um, yeah. which has been around for, gosh, like almost 100 years. Yeah. Um, JCPenney, I realize the the founder of JCPenney had the in, totally insane name of uh, James Cash Penny, yeah. uh, which I love. Um, and his original store was called the golden rule and his golden rule was that he only took cash. Um, it's in the name. Yeah. I mean, and just, you know, his, his original store in Wyoming was, I think if we could get in a time machine and go back, I think a lot of our readers would, would love to go in. I mean, it was all, it was all kind of, you know, Levi's and workwear and cowboy stuff. Um, 
but you know, it's pretty, it would be pretty, it would be hard for Mr. Penny to imagine that his company now has $8 billion in debt and is going into bankruptcy court. Yeah. And did most of its transactions with coupons rather than, uh, hard currency, hard currency. I have a lot of, I have a lot of, um, this JC Penny story. I makes me sad because, you know, I do feel like JC Penney's bankruptcy and this one, I'm really not sure how it's going to unfold. Um, you know, I think that, that their possibility of digging their way out of this is probably even less than, than J Cruz. Um, but I, I just, I just really think that, you know, JC Penney has, has and continues to be such an important staple shopping staple for so many Americans. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, they've locations all over the country and it's just, you know, we, we, you and I reflected on a time where, you know, JC Penney had ranch craft and had big Mac and these, you know, really important kind of, uh, vintage store staples. Mm -hmm. Um, their workwear was sort of like the, if you couldn't afford Levi's or Lee or any of the, the big three that they were there for you with quality that was relatively equivalent. Yeah. They have a history of doing, you know, really great in-house in-house brands. Um, I mean, obviously that was sort of, you know, pre outsourcing and everything that they, you know, they've had a history of really catering to their base, um, which they, their base whom they betrayed in sort of in a, in a incredibly, enormous blunder uh in 2011 if we want to get into that yeah the apple years the apple years right so you know in 2011 jc penny was obviously uh nervous about just the way that the way that retail had changed um as they were coming out of the 2008 recession and trying to sort of remodel what it meant to be a uh, a mall department store absolutely and I mean, you know, we're, we're looking at a time when people are making, you know, a very successful jump to, to online, um, and the kind of, and the companies who, who didn't jump on that bandwagon right away are going to suffer. Uh, I think about, um, you know, borders, the bookstore that never really got their website figured out and, and, you know, they, they lost out. Um, mm-hmm. so they, they attempt at that in this era. So this is, you know, before the internet, um, JC Penny had a catalog, which had been enormously successful. Um, even before kind of the seventies mall boom, that was the way that they got the word out and their whole JC Penny's whole, uh, angle was that everything that you saw in the catalog would be in store. So the full range is always at your disposal and yeah, you could order anything by mail and, so mm, multi-pronged shopping technique. So like mm-hmm. they were innovators back then, but they failed to make the the next jump uh, into the digital era of being able to buy clothes from your computer. Absolutely. I mean, even even the proliferation of shopping malls rocked JCPenney because they had to kind of, they just didn't have the flash that some other stores did. And, and um, so every kind of change in retail has shaken up the the brand but it seemed like they were able to roll out of it so in 2011 they brought on uh ron johnson who had uh worked at apple and he had um 
had this tremendous success, you know, totally changing um, Apple's uh, retail presence. And he'd worked really closely with Steve Jobs. Um, I mean, he'd had a meteoric uh, experience. Uh, yeah, at Apple is like, I, I, I recall correctly, is like the most profitable retail store, like per square foot by far. Absolutely. That they even beat out like Tiffany's because, you know, you can pack so many iPhones and iPads into <laughs> a like 800 square foot space. And yeah, just like, you know, in, in, he had a good, he had a good understanding of how to make a in-person shopping experience, you know, compete with the, the ease of the online one. And he even, he even, uh, redid, uh, Target's retail space. Um, and both those companies were doing pretty well. And in, in a time when a lot of, you know, brick and mortar locations were losing out to, to online sales. Um, and I think JC Penney rightly assumed that he could work his magic on them. Um, but I think we, at this point, we had another uh, identity crisis, um, which I think, hmm. I, I think, when I think of, uh, I mean, all sorts of folks shop at JCPenney's, but I think that he, he was trying to chase this kind of more svelte <laughs> Apple audience or something, and he wanted to redo the way the store worked, and he did away with coupons, and he kind of neglected their in-house brands, which had always performed rather well. And he, um, he brought in outside brands and mm-hmm. he changed the format of the stores and he rolled out these changes across all stores without ever testing them, like without ever, uh, doing them on a smaller scale, which I think, you know, this is the kind of hubris. Um, and, and he brought in a menswear icon, uh, Nick Wooster mm-hmm. to head up their, uh, like menswear side. Yeah. And do their uh, JCP, if I remember, which right. was like their like basics line that was pretty decent quality stuff. Uh, like I like went in and I remember when it came out and I looked at like what the jeans and what the shirts and what the uh, like individual garments looked like. And they were well designed and they were cheap. It was like $20 for a shirt, like 25 for a pair of pants that weren't great. But, you know, they were at least of uh, Uniqlo quality, which... It, it seemed like they saw the writing on the wall, but their customers weren't ready for it. Yeah, I just, yeah, it's, and the, this change was just an enormous disaster. The company lost $4.3 billion in annual sales. Um, and Johnson, within 17 months, had been ousted. And it seems like, right, they didn't kind of double down on their, on their demographic and they tried, it's hard to articulate, but it feels like they were trying to yeah, bring in new blood as opposed to, you know, reinforce the kind of brand loyalty of their current customer base. And, you know, I think that I, I don't, I, it feels a little, I don't think that my grandparents, I've mentioned them in the article are indicative of all JC Penney shoppers, but I think of my grandparents who do love JC Penney and, you know, who are kind of internet phobic people. And I know there's a lot of, you know, Americans out there who do want to do their shopping in person and they do want kind of like, you know, trustworthy brands that they've known for, you know, their lifetime. And I think JC Penney kind of stabbed those people in the back by trying to totally reinvent itself and kind of for whom it's hard to know. Um, 
and they lost a lot of a lot of their customer base because I think that that change, even if it was of a reasonable quality, was just um, not what they wanted. Um, and I yeah. just think I think there are people in America who probably would still like a mail order catalog, which is kind of crazy and old school. But you know, I, I don't know that they needed to. And I mean, but again, this is another another company with an incredible debt load and this pressure to make these payments. And I just feel like if any of these companies had the luxury to take a breath and stand back, they could say, you know, well, maybe we just need to double down on the thing we do. Like what makes us JCPenney? What makes us J.Crew? Rather than it feels really kind of scatterbrained and all over the place. Yeah. And especially when they're so large that to make any monumental shift like that is such a huge undertaking Mm -hmm. and so expensive and takes so long that you know it it might just be better to start a new company to do that rather than revamp it yeah as you said it feels like an identity crisis especially for what um they tried to do in the early 2010s but uh yeah so they're bankrupt as well and uh yeah any way forward for them is like j crew um I feel like they might have a path forward because they were more invested in online mm-hmm. and their footprint in malls is so much smaller. And they, I feel like they have a more loyal uh, following to the brand identity itself. Whereas mm-hmm. JCPenney, maybe I'm just so dis- disconnected from it, but like JCPenney has a huge uh, like physical retail investment mm-hmm. and they I don't think that they have nearly the same like online presence mm-hmm. uh, in terms of... Uh, online to brick and mortar retail sales um yeah i I don't know if they have a way forward um right now especially compared to something like j crew which it's already iffy at best and like who knows when mall traffic will be what it once was if it ever will be again right and i do think that you know because jc penny was so ill-equipped for an inner their internet presence was so lacking it they were just totally knocked down by, you know, a mall shutdown. That that kind of old-fashioned uh, revenue stream was keeping them afloat, it seems. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's it's really looking doubtful for JCPenney. I think you're absolutely right that J. Crew, J. Crew has more of an identity, absolutely, and more of a following. Um, at, uh, you know, JCPenney right now has like an $8 billion debt load. Um, they have 846 stores. What's that? It's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Uh, yeah, 846 stores, 85,000 employees. Um, and the uh, a concern uh, in their ongoing negotiations of potential restructuring is the presence of H2, um, which is a private equity group that... Uh, many, many think, uh, find responsible for the, you know, liquidation of, uh, Toys R Us. Mm. Um, and horrible things they did to Toys R Us. Yeah. um, I mean, H2, uh, stalled a lot in those negotiations and they refused to fund severance costs for their laid off employees. Um, Uh, so it is bad news for J, uh, JC Penney employees at the moment is, yeah, if I recall, what happened to Toys R Us was basically that like H two acquired them, and then realized that like Toys R Us was actually somewhat profitable, mm-hmm. um, but they wanted to 
saddle uh, Toys R Us with debt from other companies that they owned so that they could um, like sell off the land that Toys R Us owned on their stores because they thought that was more profitable mm-hmm. than what they uh, than the business that Toys R Us actually did. So they just sunk a you know a decently successful uh, brand with that had like thirty thousand employees so they could sell off all the land that the company owned. Um, yeah, I hope that doesn't happen to JC Penny uh, as ill. Uh, run as they might have been, yeah, it's really troublesome for. What did you say? They had eighty five thousand employees. Yeah, yikes. Um, and I mean, H two last year was trying to sell um a pretty huge stake in uh in in that it had in J C Penny, and I don't believe that was successful. But it just leads us to believe that that they want out. You know, they don't really want to be saddled with this much of JCPenney's debt. Um, And you're right. I just, I don't really see a way forward for JCPenney. I mean, I see, I really see that JCPenney served a purpose. um, And, you know, if, if it didn't have a a necessarily a brand following it, certain hat, it certainly catered to uh, uh, it catered to people who, who really needed its services um so i just it would just be it would be sad to see them go um and it would just be sad to i mean especially in the wake of such kind of uh, appalling mismanagement you know a a crazy executive revolving door um just sad to see a company that kind of it's with its roots so humble in you know in workwear and things that we care about to you know to crumble like this Um, um just disappointing well one would hope that in their departure if that's what it has to be that it would make more room for higher quality uh more responsibly made goods Mm -hmm. but uh in the next section that we're going to get into here (laughs) about uh it seems like all of the american manufacturing at least in some of the larger makers uh is closing down that this was something that i found really shocking was that uh and we did a piece like right at the start of uh, all the COVID news about like, oh, here are all the made in USA manufacturers that are stepping up to make masks and hospital gowns and like uh, all the other protective equipment that was desperately needed for hospitals. But it seems like a lot of those factories are shutting down. That uh, Brooks Brothers announced that they're going to close their last three uh, domestic U.S. factories. Mm-hmm. And uh, just this week, um, Gitman Brothers, who's uh, yeah something that we a brand that we followed for a long time, and I've actually visited the factory in Pennsylvania, is shutting that factory down that's been open for almost fifty years, or uh, yeah, forty years. So uh, there doesn't seem to be any good stories, unfortunately, <laughs> coming out of this. Um, so yeah, I was wondering if you could shed some more color on, uh, I guess, first the the Brooks Brothers shutdown. Right. Um, the Brooks Brothers shut down. Um, this is definitely a developing story. Um, we haven't seen a lot of transparency from uh, the brand. Um, the the news, such as it is, mostly was coming from the mayors of these three uh, cities um, in which the where the factories, the factories were located, and they were all expressing you know, concern the, I believe the mayor of Garland, North Carolina. Yes. 
she she didn't seem at all surprised um, that that was where the majority of the Oxford shirts were made. And um, Brooks Brothers had had a really famous outlet store in the town that people from all over the world would drive to to get you know cheap Brooks Brothers. And I think the closure of that store in 2018 really rocked this small town. It employed a lot of people. And I think that, you know, the residents of this town had sort of seen the writing on the wall. But it is curious because we only a matter of weeks ago, really, we, we were we were really lauding Brooks Brothers jump to making PPE and kind of touting them as an example of this is how we do American manufacturing. This is, you know, how it works. And, mm. um, and that the, the mayor of, uh, Haver Hill, Massachusetts, um, which housed another Brooks brothers factory, uh, was really disappointed because they'd granted them a lot of tax cuts to keep them in the U S. Um, and, uh, yeah, but it's never enough. <laughs> It's never enough. And I, for me, Brooks Brothers is not, has, has not ever been very accessible. I know that the times that I was in Boston, I, I had seen the store and it doesn't have a big footprint out West where, where I live or in LA at least. Um, but it does have this kind of, you know, mythic feel to it. And mm-hmm. it's uh, a 200 year old brand. Yeah. Uh, inventor of the Oxford cloth button down supposedly. Right. And just, you know, has this, the once kind of the blue blood East Coast side of my family, it was a tradition that, you know, upon graduating college, you would get a, you know, a bespoke Brooks Brothers suit made before you went off and worked in law or whatever it was. (laughs) And, you know, that mythology always was really enchanting to me. So it's, it's really, you know, it's just so disappointing to see this happening. But it makes sense because... Brooks Brothers apparently had been, you know, trying to, or the parent, the company that owns Brooks Brothers had been trying to sell off the brand uh, for some time. Um, and it was Is a pri- it another private equity firm. Um, in this case, I, d- I think it's owned privately. I don't, I don't believe it is owned by a private equity company. Okay. But I'm, it's very likely it will be owned by a private yeah, equity I company. Yeah, I imagine they're going to be coming into play soon, whether <laughs> if they're, they're not there already. It's- Right. The vultures circling the, the carcass. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a private sale um, that had to be extended because no one really came uh, came forward. And uh, depending on the number of stores, uh, whoever this buyer was, um, whatever how depending on the number of stores they bought, it could be folded into bankruptcy proceedings if they wanted. So Brooks Brothers had kind of been dancing with this idea of you know I don't know restructuring or something. Um, and, uh, they too have a significant debt burden at 600 million. So it's not as much as the other brands you've talked about, but quite a bit of money. Yeah. Still nothing that, you know, I'm going to go take out at the ATM. Yes. Tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, the Brooks Brothers story still feels unfinished. I'm, I'm certain that we'll, we'll hear more about them, but mm-hmm. it's, uh, you're right it's we're not seeing a lot of good news unfortunately out out of all this it just seems like it's impossible for a large brand or anyone that is even remotely mainstream to still manufacture here 
Absolutely. Because it's just so much cheaper to send it overseas. It was like, um, I had the opportunity to visit the um, Gitman Brothers factory in Ashland, Pennsylvania three years ago. Um, yeah, I think it was three years ago. No, it was four years ago. That uh, it's like in the middle middle of uh, Pennsylvania, and yeah, the the workforce there was pretty old. That I, I remember um, the uh, factory manager telling me that the average age there was fifty eight, and oh. the average number of years worked for the company was like twenty five, and it was just like all these old women that were there on the floor that uh, were sewing, like one person sewed like uh, cuffs for shirts, one person sewed box pleats, one person like attached uh, um, buttons and like that was it. And they did it all the time. And they said they used to have like 200 to 300 employees and now they were down to less than 100. As like most of the work that they did was a uh, private label for Burberry or for even like Brooks Brothers uh, Black Fleece, um, the Tom Brown Brooks Brothers collection from like 10 years ago, that that used to be uh, made in uh, by Gitman Brothers, uh, I believe, and then their own like house brand Gitman Brothers Vintage. But it's just slowly sort of whittled down to only be the Gitman Brothers like house brand that still demands that premium price point mm -hmm. and has a cachet that will sell in you know retailers all over the world. Um, but that's not enough to keep the factory open apparently. And so like a real disappointment for that town. Cause I remember that town was a coal mining town, uh, and that business dried up, uh, like long before that I was able to make that visit. Um, so yeah, small town America, again, another one where, you know, it, even though it's just a hundred jobs, it's one town that's really going to be, uh, hurt really hard by it. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah, unsure where uh, the next good story of domestic manufacturing will come out. Mm -hmm. um, maybe this will be a thing that in the next uh, economic downturn that we're seem to be just on the precipice of right now, um, that more people will like in the end of the 2008 recession, focused on domestic manufacturing again, and uh, maybe more good will come out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, who knows? But... Um, yeah, are there any other companies that are sort of on the bubble right now that we're watching or any other stories that are developing that we haven't been able to cover just yet that, uh, we might expect to cover in the near future? Well, I think we've, you know, the, the, I think we've really turned our gaze towards our small businesses, um, and their struggle, uh, over the course of this, um, pandemic, um, and I think a lot of the the stories that I found most heartening have come from our small businesses. Um, and, you know, these are also, we've been very fortunate in that a lot of the smaller businesses we work with have been very uh, open with us and uh, um, really honest and, and eager to sort of share their personal struggles in regards mm -hmm. to, you know, getting loans from the government and, um, generally just navigating shutdowns and very vague guidelines and all this, all this COVID nonsense that, um, that anybody who has a business needs, needs to navigate. Mm -hmm. um, it's important. I, I don't know if I go so far as to call it nonsense, but uh -huh. it's just like, yeah, a lot of difficulties that a lot of these brands, especially small ones where like, 
the nonsense, I guess I would say, probably comes in poor messaging. Absolutely. Yeah, um, the, I should specify that, right? The, the nonsense yeah. itself is the poor communication and the frequent changes, changing in messaging from, from, you know, from be it state, local, federal governments. Yeah, um, of like what is required and what uh, methods they need to do to get their employees paid or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, even whether if they can be open or not. Right. Um, and, you know, we've also been trying to stay on top of the changes in the uh, Paycheck Protection Program, which mm-hmm. uh, which we wrote about from the very beginning, from you know the first day hearing about it. And yeah. just... Has anyone had any luck with it? We've seen some luck. Um, in our article where we spoke to Jason Peckerick and Miranda Malloy, so Jason Peckerick of Division Road, in Seattle mm-hmm. and Miranda Malloy of Snake Oil Provisions in Long Beach and um, Helen Wade of The Stockist in Salt Lake City. Um, at the time that I interviewed them, only Helen had been able to uh, get a loan. And this was after her bank uh, lost her first application and then didn't get back to her. And it was only in the second round of uh, funding that she was able to get a second application in and get some money. Um, really lost the application lost the application Miranda Malloy was, was able that- to get uh, some money towards the end but it was a f- it was something strange it was through PayPal or it was based on it was based on one employee's salary it was not based on the company's uh, you know needs as a whole and mm-hmm. um, and she uh, of the people I spoke to really felt the most um, misled by these various organizations. And also she shared with me something important, which was that when we are discussing small businesses in this time, she really wanted me to use more positive vocabulary, nothing that would kind of connote some, you know, crisis within the, the brands. Um, so just not to like cause a, a stir, you know, with their customer base or with our readers. Um, mm-hmm. But I just, the, uh, the, this, these really arduous journeys to get this money um, were so different from what we had been led to believe uh, the Paycheck Protection Program and the Small Business Administration loans would look like. Um, mm. So yeah, And now there's the latest round, which apparently uh, Steve Mnuchin says they won't even say where that money's going. So I'm, I'm guessing that's not going to be uh, finding its way to your local small broad denim boutique. No, I mean, and that was the 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 biggest upset of all this because even after you know so much bailout money was sent to airlines and uh, enormous companies that you know that it was didn't of, necessarily even need it, right? Then we're the just going to use it for maybe stock buybacks and not pay their employees. Exactly. Then these small business loans started going to places like Shake Shack, uh, the LA Lakers, um, huge companies. And a lot of this was, there were these, um, there were these loopholes. And I guess in 2016, we sort of changed the rules of the federal government changed the rules of what we consider to be a small business. And depending on your industry, like if you're, you know, in steel or if you're a a brewery, um, you're, the ceiling to be considered a small business here in terms of employees is, is pretty high. It's 
usually over a thousand employees. Uh, I think fifteen hundred is in the, some cases. That's a small business. That's a small business, mm-hmm. and and a lot of you know these industries, like huge biotech companies, uh, steel factories, they got you know multi million dollar loans. Uh, whereas you know companies like the Stockist in Salt Lake City with two employees had to really fight for just enough you know just enough to like make sure their employees were treated well for the duration of the of the crisis mm-hmm. um and i think that was really the most i just think the i this might just be my own opinion but just seeing how the structures that i think that a lot of us took for granted that we that we assumed would be in place to look out for us in a time of crisis really seemed uh, so much more self-serving than I think even the most, even I sometimes cynical Even the person. most cynical could have uh, imagined. Absolutely. Um, and it was just so disheartening to see this money that had, uh, had been advertised as being, you know, a lifesaver and, uh, you know, all sorts of things for these companies going to folks that frankly didn't need it. Um, and it should be said that, that places like Shake Shack and the LA Lakers did return that money, but that was only after, you know, intense public, uh, blowback. Um, Mm -hmm. they had to be shamed in order to return it, which is the same way that like a lot of, um, very, very well endowed, uh, academic institutions like Harvard and Yale and like those places with billions and billions of dollars in the bank, Mm -hmm. um, were offered this money and it's just sort of a clear example of the lack of equity in our system of like, oh, this is meant to help people, but only the people that have the resources to acquire it, like, but actually don't need it are the ones that are able to get it. So like if you have a team of accountants and lawyers on staff that can fill out all the paperwork and have the connections with the banks to like put your application to the front of the stack, you're going to get your help. But if you have all that resource in the first place, you you really don't necessarily need the help. Right, and and the and the really outrageous thing about the paycheck protection, or one of several outrageous things, was that it it had been advertised so clearly as a first come first serve initiative, and um, and I think there the, there were these aspects that weren't totally transparent, like the fees that the banks would get, um, and how obviously these fees would be so much higher if they were processing enormous loans to companies that could only barely be classified as a small business under, you know, the most, the recent, our current administration. Mm, they were actually rulings. very large businesses that, uh, right. So it's just, and then on top of this, you know, there to have the banks, uh, be the arbiters of this, sort of you know uh life of these life-saving measures um was so ill-conceived because the banks owe nothing to us they're trying to you know make a profit and Mm -hmm. and uh secure as many um many of these fees as possible and i the there was a a number of how much the banks had earned themselves yeah, and that was the thing that I saw that the the way that the legislation was written 
was it was designed to try to incentivize uh, smaller loans for smaller businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, that like if you were requesting a loan of less than a hundred thousand dollars, the uh, like fee for the bank was like five percent. Mm-hmm. If it was more, that was like between a hundred and five hundred thousand dollars. The fee was three percent. If it was between five hundred thousand and a million, it was one percent. Um, but it was structured in such a way that like. One percent of a million dollars is a lot more than five percent of a hundred thousand dollars. So they just did the uh, bigger loans first, and especially because like they knew there was a limited amount of money, they wanted to grab as much as they could before it ran out. Right, and there were lawsuits filed against um, you know the Small Business Administration and the banks because um, it was pretty transparent that in the, you know, first three quarters of the period, they were just, they were only processing these enormous loans and didn't begin to process the smaller ones, at least in the first round until the Mm -hmm. very end. Um, and just, I, and on top of this all, I mean, just on like a person to person basis, uh, our, the brands that I spoke to were I don't, it's hard for me to say lied to because I don't really know what the chain of communication looks like in these banks from, you know, the higher up, the higher ups to folks who are actually in the physical locations. But there were people telling, you know, people told Brandon Malloy at Bank of America said that they weren't handling these loans at all. And, um, and then Wells Fargo had another excuse for why they couldn't do it. So there was a lot too of, big to fail, too big to help you. Yeah, <laughs> and there's a lot of passing the buck in that way, and and a lot of cases, if you took the time to, which these diligent small businesses did do, to check their the facts, uh, that was a lie. You know, Bank of America absolutely was handling those loans, and um, so people had more luck with like smaller credit unions, but it was just it was a toss up as to what you would get. And then um, the majority, and then there is this forgiveness aspect, but then you have to spend the money in such a way. Most best go to payroll. Um, and when in a lot of cases, the most pressing expense for a lot of these businesses is their rent, um, which you know is obviously not being forgiven. In some cases, there's an eviction freeze and all that, but it's just really a, a tremendous... I don't know, a tremendous lapse um, and certainly I think has contributed to this feeling that our government, you know, and these institutions that are meant to protect us really do not intend to do so. Oh. Yeah, and that's only sort of reinforced by the literal agents of the government coming out to beat and gas us. So as this happened in the last couple of weeks in like pretty much every city in America. Right. And I I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, these, to see our small businesses betrayed, uh, Mm -hmm. who are, you know, just this tangible, you know, aspect of our America, our collective American dream to see them just so royally screwed, uh, by, you know, by the banks, by us, these, the small business administration. Um, I think, uh, you know, I think that we're, we're, middle-class white America is coming to terms with the fact that uh, the institutions that we thought would protect us only will do so as long as we are very docile and everything is working correctly. 
um, which is uh, a luxury that not all communities in our country have. And Mm -hmm. very, very few have. Very few have. Uh, So I just feel like, you know, that's been sort of my, uh, my perhaps overly far reaching uh, observation in this time is, you know, these, all the, all the things that I thought could potentially sustain us in time of crisis. um, Well, they want to help out the banks more than they want to help us out. Yeah. Well, um, any good news to end on Uh, anything that's looking up or positive uh, in the future in our, our little heddles community. Um, I think that my takeaway though, from all this is just how important these small businesses that we support are to us. Um, you know, in talking to Helen Wade, for example, of the stockist, as businesses are opening up, some businesses are opening up a little more recklessly, especially larger businesses. Small businesses are the ones who are really taking the initiative to open, you know, thoughtfully, um, in speaking to Jason Peckerick of Division Road, he expressed this uh, philosophy of concentric circles, of just trying to do good to the people closest to you and hoping that that ripples outwards. And I thought that that was really effective. That really affected me because especially now um, when so much feels so dire, um, to remember that 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 doing doing small, the small acts of goodness that we can perpetuate to the people closest to us does have a tangible effort and does ripple outwards. And I think is how we begin to institute larger change, larger positive change. Um, And I would also like to just thank all those people that, that were willing to speak to me. And, and uh, we spoke to a lot of our brands and they took a lot of time out in a very hectic, crazy time uh, and it was just, it was, I have felt most optimistic when I speak to any of these small business owners because they took the initiative to, if they, their business wasn't online, they went online. Even if they were online, they made it better, if, you know? And mm-hmm. I do really feel like those people are, you know, if our small business owners could take positions in government, I think we'd be so well off. Uh, hmm. They just are adaptable and they're creative. And, um, and that's kind of what makes me proud, you know, the way, the way that I feel proud to see, you know, my compatriots out in the street protesting, uh, even though, again, the situation feels so dire, I do feel so proud when I see people kind of taking a stand and doing the right thing. Mm. And, um, yeah. yeah. And these uh, small businesses are actually part of the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way that like Starbucks and Chase Bank uh, are not and have no real investment in a community aside from, you know, just the square footage that they happen to occupy. Absolutely. So, yeah, as you said, like the businesses that you invest in, um, like in where you choose to spend your money, like will reinvest in that same community um, and not just sort of funnel up to shareholders. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you very much, uh, Albert, for coming on and taking the time to you know, explore a lot of what you've been writing about for the last couple months. I hope there is uh, rosier news <laughs> in the future, uh, although not exactly predicting it, that uh, we'll have links to uh, all the stories that uh, we discussed in the description here. 
and including a uh, list of black and indigenous and people of color owned businesses um, in the like Heddle space that you can support. But uh, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on, Albert. And thanks for taking the time. And we'll be uh, sure to have you back on real soon, hopefully with brighter futures ahead. Well, thanks so much for having me, David. It was such a pleasure. Okay, so I'm here with uh, Mohsen Sajid, and who is one of the uh, foremost Renaissance men, I would say, in denim. That uh, Mohsen, you have your own brand, Endrime. Yep. You've uh, been a denim designer for nearly 20 years now, consulted mm-hmm. with uh, like brands big and small and like enormous manufacturers, and have done a lot of denim education uh, like all throughout the raw denim and heritage space. So it is such a pleasure to have you on. You've uh, been kind enough to write a few articles for us, uh, including a sewing machine uh, vintage guide that I still reference uh, about every (laughs) uh, six months to a year when I see something pop up on eBay. And uh, yeah, just uh, really glad to have you on and hopefully uh, bend your ear about what is going on in the denim industry today and sort of how you got to where you are. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much. I said uh, Heddles and, and like sort of like you guys and even Raw Denim like before Heddles, you guys have been big supporters of me and the work that I've been doing for, for a good amount of time. I think it's more than 10 years or so. I'm sure we've been, we've been on and off and we've met many times as well at various trade shows. So it's an absolute pleasure to be, uh, be, be, uh, do, a, do a podcast with you, especially during this COVID period. And we're coming out of it now in the UK. We're just slowly coming out of it. So we're seeing slow, slowly the light at the end of the tunnel here. But um, no, I've, uh, I've been, um, yeah, actively, thank you very much for that introduction. I think like a like Renaissance man in the denim is quite a lovely thing to, to be called. Yeah, for sure. I, uh, I'm, very, I'm very much still about the past. And I, I, but I always reference the past, but I'm always doing new, new ways of working and modern ways of working. And yeah, I have been working for many, many brands throughout my career, as well as um, consult for lots of mills now as well and lots of manufacturers so both on the denim production side so making garments to also making fabric so on both sides of the scale and and i consult for um tencel as well which has been quite a fun thing that i've been doing for two years as well as still doing endrime and teaching which hasn't hasn't really ever ever stopped so yeah thank you so thank you so much for inviting me Oh, yeah. We're really happy to have you. It's a thing that it seems like every aspect of the denim industry you have some hand in. Um, <laughs> and as well as you uh, are also one of the most passionate people I know in this uh, business that you know, live and breathe and really appreciate denim and not just the sort of veneration of older uh, heritage styles, yeah. although you've got an incredible knowledge of those, but uh, I to think- sort of push denim forward. <laughs> in a way that not a lot of other people seem as invested in when uh, it comes to heritage clothing. Yeah, I, I just get a little bit frustrated because everyone keeps on referencing the, the main free brands, you know, the, the Levi's Lee and Wranglers. And yes, you know, very important as they are, but Dedham just, you know, it, it, you know May, May 20th, 1873 is when the rivet got patented. But there was ma- many more documented garments before that that are very interesting. And and the lead up to the 1920s, that's very interesting as well. And everything, everyone always like references the golden era being, you know, after 1947 or something like this. And for me, that's not the golden era at, 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 at all. It's actually the era where things became mass, mass, mass produced. And, you know, if you look at a garment from the 20s and look at a garment from the 1940s, there's a big radical shift 
on how things were made and it all comes down to cost and money and being being really really commercial so all these garments that people think are amazing are actually watered down versions of what they should what they should what they should have been so um that's only something that i've learned or learned along the way really once i've been researching myself for various brands and for my own brand and um and then whenever i found out stuff yeah i've been very um transparent about it from the very beginning as well from from educating students and and educating other brands as well. Now, a lot of the stuff that I do, there's a lot of brands that I can name on a couple of dozens of hands that I've had influences from some of the research that I've shared, which I'm quite happy to do, and I still do. So, yeah, very much enjoy that aspect of it. But, yeah, anyway. What was your introduction and in getting into denim in this way? Like, where did the rabbit hole start? Is uh, I mean, Did you grow up in the UK as well? Yeah, yeah. So I was born. I was born in 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 the UK. I come from a, a Pakistani family, but I was born and bred in in the in the UK. And I, I studied fashion at a very early age. I knew from the age of twelve. I, I really enjoyed illustration and very much into manga and anime. And I was very much into illustration at that stage. And 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 I, I enjoyed textiles. I, I think at the age of like twelve or thirteen, I had an option to either pick art or textiles. And I picked I picked textiles. So only only because I really enjoyed like manipulating fabric and doing print and doing embroidery and, and all these types of things. I didn't really know I was kind of a career in fashion, let's just say. But then um then later on I, I decided to do uh, a fashion tech tech textile course from the age of like sixteen. And it was like a kind of like an N D, kind of like an equivalent to an A level. I don't know what the equivalent would be in, in Canada or like the US. And then um mm-hmm. Then I then I went on and I studied fashion at, at like a BA level, and I, I never knew denim was a thing that I enjoyed. I actually didn't. Um, I thought it was kind of like beneath me in some respect because I was into tailoring and cut and shape, and I really enjoyed complicated pattern cutting, like really complicated um, women's wear. So, if I used to really get, I used to get excited about doing a really complicated shape, but then you wouldn't know it's complicated until you look really closely at it. So I guess those essences are still in the brands that I help and consult for. Even my own brand, Engrime, is very, very much a, a labor of love, very uh, complicated garment, but actually from far away, it looks like a simple garment. So those sort of things have still resonated with me, especially through dart manipulation and pushing the boundaries of how, how you have shape. Obviously, nowadays, there's so many brands that don't even rely on shape or fit. You just have a really boxy shape and they can sell it and they get thousands of thousands of millions of hits. So it's a really strange period that we're in the last probably 10 years or so where it's been less about fit and, and shape. It's more, it's more about um, oversized things, which I think is going to go back to being more tailored again and more considered. Ho- hopefully, that's what I think. Um, but how it started for me, so I studied a, I studied a BA, so like a BA honours in fashion. And in that BA honours, like a three-year BA course, I did do a denim module. It's, just, it's actually... It's like a two-week module where we learn about denim history. So we learn about Levi's, we learn about like rivets and holding, having strength where thing. You know, we learn about the whole concept, but we only had like a week and a half to do a project. And we, I think, we got some denim from Isco or something. It was from one of one of the mills that sponsored the the course, and we all did the project, and it was fine. And I never, never really revisited denim again until I finished my studies. So I, my my first job out of university was actually working for a Japanese company called Okini. Which still exists now, and um, they oh, yeah. at that time they were it's, it's the same place where Amy Leviton started out as well. So that, yeah. that's why we that's why we have links. Oh, so and, you've um, known her for like twenty years. Oh yeah, as well. yeah. I've known her. She, my very first job was actually with with her. So yeah. So um, so me and Amy go back years and years. And um, so basically, when I was at Okini, uh, Okini at that time was all about doing like collaborations. This is way before collaborations were a thing. Nowadays, 
everything's about collaborating. But back then, because we're talking 2001, 2002, that period, um, Okini were one of the first companies where if you wanted to sell at Okini, you had to collaborate with Okini. So they collaborated with Levi's, Adidas, Paul Smith, Evisu. Um, you name any, any of the, the, the coolest brands at that time would try and collaborate with Okini because if you collaborate with them, um, your product will be sold through the Okini website. And this is really at the beginning of e- e-commerce as well. If you, I did, did a print screen of one of the websites that we built. It's the most shocking piece of website ever. It's so like basic. Web 1.0. Oh, yeah, thing. seriously, d- uh, dial-up style. And um, you know, it usually only had like one or two pictures. We could only fit in not even like probably the same amount of text that you can put on like a tw- uh, put in like a Twitter post. It wasn't even allowed. Couldn't put much text in. Very different, you know. And I remember I took the pictures on this this camera which took um a weird kind of not even sd sd card it was like a weird it was like a weird device that we took photographs on and i remember each picture was only like 680 80 uh, pixels wide it was like really really old school and uh, that's how so we there's that's a how real air of yeah yeah, yeah um, air of mystery when you purchase something from akimi that you yeah, but, you didn't but, exactly know what you were getting not like now where you can see like eight yeah, different but, angles and super yeah, yeah and What's interesting was that this is a really strange concept. They even had a shop in Savile Row at the time, which is a quite well-known streetwear where you get tailored garments made. And you went into the shop, you could view all the products, but you couldn't physically buy anything. So that you would actually, you, there'll be a guy with a, la- with a laptop there and you'll put your order in and you'll, you'll put your credit card in. And he goes, yeah, it's going to be like DH- it's gonna be D- it's gonna be DHL to you in, in, a, in about two days' time. So people used to get really... Oh, you couldn't fr- walk home with anything. No, people get really <laughs> frustrated and really actually pissed off. They would come in, they've got hard cash on them and they physically can't take the garment away with them. They go, no, no, we're going to DHL it to you. So it was... <laughs> it, that, so that we did that and that happened. So I was there at the beginning and I was there for about nearly three years. And then I left Okini and I did all the Levi's collaborations there. So all the Levi's Japan and Levi's y- Europe. And I did some Avisu collections as well. And and I got the denim bug from that, and I, I also ended up doing a project with Cone Mills in that same time. This is when Cone actually went bankrupt for one of the first times back in two thousand and two or two thousand and three. And I remember um, Amy mentioned that that she went over there like in the early two thousands to do that yeah. collaboration. Yeah, yeah, and that's that, that same project Amy was Amy was actually talking about, and it's a project that uh, I actually started with Cone and a brand called Duffer and Duffer of St George, who um, they basically said that we would only work with Okini if we can do a collab with Cone, Cone Mills or Cone Denim at the time. So I managed to, to, to literally get on the phone and I spoke to Ralph Thorpe and we started up a collab and they actually made um, a, a loom steak fabric for us, a salvage little fabric. So I know there's lots of talk where Roy, uh, Roy, Roy Denim, Roy Staple also, also said that he, he convinced Cone to do the very first um, Sanfra, or non-Sanfra's denim or, or Stanford. I'm not, not too sure what he said, but actually I believe the Okini collab that we did back in 2003 was the first one. So it, it, um, we beat them by 10 years, I think. But anyway, it's not, it's just one of these things. But um, The Levi's but, might have beaten you by a few years oh, before absolutely. that. absolutely. But... <laughs> I'm not saying that, but at this time, n- no one was interested at all yeah. in doing it. This yeah, no one knew what Cone Mills was well, no really one, back then, except people, for the real heads. Unless the, the, the real people knew about it, but at that time, no one was using it to a point where it was when I got on the phone with them, like, really, you want to use salvage? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, oh, okay, sure. Uh, let's send you some swatches of developments we're doing and we'll take it from there. And, you know, Ralph came to the UK and, and it took about, I think, six or seven months developing this fabric. And, you know, it was really fun. It was the first time I, I actually developed a fabric with a, with, with, with a mill. Rather than picking it off the shelf or, or seeing swatches, it was very much what kind of hand feel do you want? What kind of slubbiness do you want? How irregular do you want it? 
And it was a really, uh, and then when me and Amy both went over to Cone Mills, of course, I think it was in 2004 or 2005, I forgot which date it was, and then which date. And then we did their uh, Denham College there. So it was after that point where I think both me and Amy had the, had the both, both had the green light at the same time. We both got the bug at that actual point. And I think she's even documented it going, it was at that actual point where I thought the Denim's the thing for me. And I think mine, my story pretty much starts at that point as well. And then, um, then I went to a consult for Edwin and, and many more brands after that, uh, you know, countless and many more. And uh, But I think hi- highlights have been working for like DKNY Jeans and Timberlands. I was there for quite a long time and VF and and I consulted for many high street brands and many, 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 pre- many pre- sort of premium brands. But it was roughly at the 10 year mark when I had um, been a denim designer for 10 years where I decided to start my own brand, Endrime. And that's when the story of me being more trans- transparent came about. And, and then... Um, I started to document everything and I, I created a shit denim blog and I create, I just shared lots of knowledge because I was finding these things out myself and there was no, there was no blogs about like, machines. There wasn't, there wasn't Instagram at this point. So I couldn't share my knowledge with any of these other amazing denim friends that I found from Ben who lives in Canada to, you know, it's, it, 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 about a dozen people that are really good denim heads who know about their like machines. And luckily all of us are quite friendly with each other. There's a, not much of a competition, but we help each other out. So uh, there wasn't that community yet, so I would often share machines, and and um, and that's probably how, it, how I came to your attention. I think but I'm not not too sure, but um, but yeah, that's how it came to be. I get that, and um, but I've been a lot the last six or seven years. I've been working a lot with mills and designing fabrics for them and designing collections for them. So whenever you go to a kingpin or anything, show, any show like that, there'll be probably a hundred mills there or hundred people like presenting fabrics or collections. There's always ghost designers who work on these collections so i've become one of these ghost like designers and it's been very like rewarding because now we're getting to work with fabrics that aren't even like released yet we're getting to design things that are maybe one or two years away and test out the fabrics test out the, the finishes test if they work well with l- l- laser machines and then present these collections to a levi's or a gap or an american eagle and uh, it's very satisfying when things that you've done for the last year and then these bigger companies end up p- p- picking it because it suits their brand or whatever so it's, it's nice full circle f- uh for me but yeah i don't know mm. if that answered your question but yeah oh yeah very thoroughly thank you <laughs> you've been working in denim pretty much exclusively for that yeah. that entire time from yeah yeah okini onwards so 18 years literally only denim of course I, I'm, a, I'm a fashion designer first, so uh, everyone, whenever I meet anyone and they're denim people or they're designers, they, they end up sticking to only being denim. But I, I can, uh, I'm multi-product, so I can design shirts, jackets, pants, tailored garments, uh, any talent tailoring. So ended up, um, so for lots of things, you know, and end up doing my own pattern cutting as well. But whenever I meet um, other designers or other companies, they're very surprised. They're like, oh, you can pattern cut as well. Oh, you can do, everyone's very surprised. But I think it might, it might be the, the, the the British way of how I was educated it's very much you have to be a specialist in pretty much any in, especially if you're going to do one particular subject but um, I, I still dabble dabble my you know especially when you're designing my own brand I end up doing lots of other types of products as well but no I, I it's always been denim denim and denim and, and yeah anything anything indigo yeah it's 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 that's what I I like I like draw to now so yeah but yeah it's that sort of um, ability to do anything that I think is rare, fairly uncommon mm. in um, at least the fashion industry that I've met. I mean, a lot of the people, I guess, sort of in our corner, you have to be able to do everything because companies are so small. Yes. And uh, 
but uh, yeah, I was just talking to Dave Hamill a couple months ago, oh, yeah. and he was talking about like, oh yeah, Moisten's gonna uh, come up with a uh, a, a like pattern. denim jacket, like yeah. shorthorn pattern for me. Hmm. Like, I'll let you know when it's ready. I think oh, you'll love it. And I yeah, was like, I oh great, I look I forward to think. that. <laughs> I already said, actually we met David Hamill. We we used to go to like CC show in Japan. Well, I think we did it for nearly four years or so. And I stopped doing it after a while, but basically, um, because I did the whole trade show thing, and I feel it just didn't work for me or my brand anymore. I think with the formula of selling collections, and it's just literally it doesn't work. Like you know, I've got friends who like there's a brand called Story MFG, like Katie and Said. Mm-hmm. They they for the first two seasons didn't do that formula. They didn't spend you know fifteen thousand, twenty thousand dollars on going to a different country in two big suitcases. Uh, showing collections making meetings they they just did everything through like reddit you know through through reddit you know and they built their their fan base and their custom base on that they didn't even they made they made stores come to them so there's a very much a different way of um presenting yourself now to what even what it was six seven years ago and is very much this newer generation of designers who who are saying like fuck this method of that you know we haven't got we haven't got budget to to spend like that but no but regarding david himmel we he's really funny and we we i like i've always liked his humor I think how I met him, he actually, he actually was really abusive to someone, and me and Sadia laughed at it because we thought <laughs> it was the most funniest thing he did, and we hit it off after that. I think he was just really rude to someone, and I quite quite liked it. And we were obviously when you're in Japan and you're in a trade show, and there's only like you know probably three or four other brands that are English speaking, you tend to always always gravitate towards these people and hang out with them. So no, Dave is cool, and he he often he often always always wants to collaborate with us. Going, we need to do collaboration. We need to do collaboration. And I think he's trying to wrap, uh, rope Sadia, my wife, into doing some illustrations for him. And, you know, so, but anyway, he always said to me, can you pattern cut? And I went, yeah, I can pattern cut anything. He goes, oh, I'd oh, love you to help me. And then I think I, I posted a picture that I was pattern cutting a Type 2 trucker jacket from an original Type 2. And he, and he just messaged me again, do you think you can send me that pattern? And I went, yeah, no, no problem. As soon as I've mastered it and I, I finished with it, like I've actually done with it, I'll send you the Gerber of it. And that, that's what I did. So I sent it to him, I think maybe a couple of months ago, but I think he couldn't open it or something. So I still have to, still have to send him a hard copy, I think, of the pattern. But no, it's quite funny. But no, I, it's very much about looking at the past and that's what it's always been for me. It's like, um, I've got an archive of more than a thousand garments. I've literally stopped counting. And most of them are vintage garments that I've collected from Japan to places in Pakistan. And, and even in Bangkok, I found some really amazing pieces. And, and um, you know, and um. I reference a lot of these things, but especially the small details. But I, I'm not—I'm not a repro person. I don't—I don't get excited about copying something one to one. But I do get excited about the fit or the pocket shape or something, and then, and then um, recreating it again, but in a modern way. So using different ways of finishing, because as I said, that everything everything changed after the 1940s. How things were made and the overlocker as well was invented, or, or the serger was invented, and, and it's all about speed. And for me, in COVID is a really interesting time that now everyone's reverting back to thinking about we should make things that last lot, a lot longer now and, and design fabrics that are better for the environment and all these things. And I'm like, yeah, we should have been doing that from the first place. Why are we making We've been talking flat? about doing it for quite some time, but yeah. uh, no one has really actually sat down and done it. Is, uh, sort of at least on the massive scale from my experience that like they'll never make the environmentally friendly choice because yeah. the uh, ultimately the, the person that's deciding is the buyer. It's the brand that's going to purchase yeah. it and they're always going to yeah. choose the cheaper fabric. Absolutely. And I was oh. speaking to a mill, a mill that I'm consulting for, and we had a, con- got a conversation just just today. And they were like, I was telling them, going, look, you know, they, they were telling me about price, going, we need to design fabrics that are, you know, under three to four dollars a meter. And I said, well, do you know what, guys? Why don't you just, do, why don't you design that twenty dollar fabric? Just have a go at it, because I know you can do it. 
and then it might inspire your free dollar fabric. And then you can show that customer the, the twenty dollar one; they'll get excited about it, and they go, "Look, we've done these other other variants that are like four dollars, and they have the same characteristics." So I said, "You need to." still design your dream fabric the one with all the bells and whistles on and then water it down so it becomes more commercial it will definitely inspire more people in your company if you did it so it's just you know and there are some people that are going for it now who are who are designing more antibacterial antiviral whatever it is they're they're looking at it in a different way going okay we need to use hemp now we need to use other things that are are more are more sustainable we need to use more tensile so more people are waking up to it and knowing the way we have been making garments and making fabric is just it's just not sustainable at at all so there has to be has to be a, a gradual uh has to be something that we have we have to do that's going to head towards a different like direction so um it is there are covid's definitely woken a lot of a lot of people up which is a great great thing so yeah yeah i was just talking with uh sortie about that that i think like this is the pause button that we needed oh yeah yeah um yeah. although there are a lot of other unfortunate collateral damage that's happening like all throughout the uh rest of the fashion industry with a lot of people that you know really had no part in the problems that mm. uh the industry created but are definitely feeling the results i think that was yeah oh, go ahead and no, no, I think absolutely right. There's lots of problems with, you know, it's brought up a lot of awareness on how how um, factory workers are being treated. We, we've known that for many years. And now to the point where these bigger corporations are, aren't even paying some of their workers or, or furloughing them and not even paying them like, properly. Um, you know, and we hear big companies, even like, like Levi's or um, companies that we all both love are on these lists that apparently aren't paying people like properly, which is quite sad to hear. So there's a lot, there's lots going on. Which is we just have to understand it properly, you know, because there's there's one thing that you're on on a list that your your company's not not being not being behaving properly, but there's always um a re- there's always some another story behind it. So I'm just being very careful about it. But I know there's a there's no perfect company. That's that's the thing we have to realize. It. And there's no company that's doing an amazing sustainable product yet, which is unbelievable. Even though many claim that that they are, but uh, I can pre- I can safely say by hand in my heart, it doesn't exist yet at all so any company that's saying that they're super sustainable and they're treating their workers properly da, 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 it, it not really yes there are some amazing factories that are doing amazing jobs and there are some amazing companies that have got great policies but you go down the line and you find out that you know i visited um i visited a, a, a brand new company in like bangladesh that had a lead platinum a certification so this basically means that they they are meant to treat their workers properly their building meets regulations, so they've got enough sunlight. They're being you know, everything about the building is amazing. But then it's the most eco-friendly oh, the type most construction that you could ever possibly imagine. Absolutely, at the lead, lead lead platinum, but they were using kids. So, mm. so for me, I saw it, and me and my wife were there, and we're like, "What the fuck?" You know, it's just like so. There's a gray area. There's still a gray area, especially in certain areas that people get away with. And this this factory owner smiled at me and goes, "Well, you know, cotton's the one industry." It's not not regulated. We can use kids still in the in the picking process and in the in the spinning process. And I was like, dude. And he goes, yeah, but then you know when it, when you get to the garment making side, that's a di- that's a different factory. So that factory is meeting all the regulations. But this earlier part, we can still use kids. And I was like, you shouldn't be using kids f- full stop, mate. So you know, it's it's like it's a real gray area. And um, but the, every every industry's got it. And then and I only saw it firsthand, and I was just completely shocked by it because this guy was there showing off his mill, and we were there to film. A concept video for him and in the end we just decided not to do it <laughs> so yeah um, probably not something you want to promote <laughs> no no but even putting our name to it you know what i mean it's it's like yeah. 
you know, it's it's one of these things that we just have, oh, it's, I'd rather I'd rather not help. And I said to Sadia and my wife as well. Again, I just don't want to. I just want to stop helping people that are just super duper rich and don't care anymore. And I only want to. Mm-hmm. I only want to help people that actually will make a difference. And and I, that's why us working for Ten Cell the last two years has been a lovely experience. To be honest, um, one of the first clients that have paid us in advance. <laughs> Who, who does that you know pays you a year in advance and and then they say oh we got this project on don't worry take your take your time with the concepts we'll come back to you in a couple of months very relaxed and you get the best work and now we produce some amazing work for them and it's probably groundbreaking work with, with candiani mill and some other people we've been collaborating with and it's been unbelievable and that's what it is if you're just more relaxed and and a bit more open about it you get better results i think yeah yeah but going back a bit to the uh, murkiness that you describe is that's like I think the difficulty with global supply chains is just there's so many different pieces that it's impossible to really even have one person that can completely conceive of how a garment was produced from, yeah. you know, seed to uh, final finished product, because it's, they're passing through so many different countries and so many different uh, sets of labor regulations and uh, different companies that have their hands on it. That in order to understand each step of the process requires you know, basically a master's degree in each level and yeah. a level of transparency that just no one is willing to provide or it, very, it, very few people are willing to provide. It's true. And yeah, there are some amazing like initiatives that the um, Transformers Foundation and Andrew Ola and his friends are doing, even with Fiber Trace and, and they're, they're all these, you know, if you want to be sustainable, there are ways to do it that, you know, any company that isn't sustainable or isn't being transparent, they got some, they got something to hide. It's a simple fact now. And like, you know, any company that doesn't, you know, they should be able to tell you exactly where their fabrics come from, where it's being made. If they don't, like I remember, uh, I told you this story before, I met with the met up with a mill and this mill, I told them, oh, where's your cotton coming from? And they said, oh, it's a secret. And I said, <laughs> and I said to them, well, never want to hear that. You never want to hear it's I, a secret. <laughs> it's a secret. I mean, it's a secret. It's a secret. We can't tell you where it's from. And I, I actually cut this guy off and I went, okay, it's either coming from these three places, Pakistan, India, or China, possibly even Turkey. That's it. Mm-hmm. And then he smiled at me and I said, where is it coming from? He goes, I can't tell you. And I went, then I can't buy from you then. I said, you know, so I said, I can't, I represent, you know, 10 companies who are buying fa- fabrics at the moment. I, I work for free, free meals. I'm not going to buy anything from you. So you've just lost this entire, entire account. All because you haven't been transparent to me. So, you know, so it's like, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing, but you know, there's, there are companies like Fiber Trace, who I've mentioned before, who, who produce this, fiber that you can put into the spinning stage so even if the garment gets burnt even from the ashes you'll be able to trace exactly where that garment was from so or the where the fiber really? came from yeah yeah yeah. there's there are things that i they you know there's blockchains now where you can document the entire process and put it on a barcode inside your garment even i we were so it's like a watermark that exists throughout yeah, the life of absolutely the fiber. exactly right so it's, it's a watermark it's, it's exactly right and this this device is no bigger than a, a mobile phone i think they've even produced it on an app form and you'll be able to scan the fabric and then automatically information would come up. Obviously, it will be a code. Then that code will go to a website and it'll tell you the history of that, where that fiber was picked from, which company was it, where the garment was made. It was like, all that's documented in this one bit of code. And that exists right right now. So um, and um, so there are there are things in place. And I know there are... And the thing is, everyone always talks about, you know, sustainability it comes at a cost. And it's true. Like, you know, all our our friends from Bangladesh or Pakistan who produce more fast, fast fashion garments, they go, Mohsin you know, a so-and-so brand like Target or Primark is asking us to be more sustainable, but they don't want to pay for it. They want to have all the, you know, all the stuff that goes with it. They want the barcode system of where that, but 
we have to pay for that, but we can't charge it back to them because they still want that garment at, I don't know, $3 or whatever it was, 50 cents. I don't know what it was. So, so there is a price for being sustainable, but whether or not the customer will understand that it's going to be a slightly higher cost at the end of the day. And, it, and some people are arguing that more than it shouldn't cost any, any, anything. We can, but I said, no, it costs something. To, to, to develop a system, any kind of system will, will, co- will, take, will cost money to, put, to, to, to implement. And as you said, to like regulate as well. And you know, so many people's hands that go through a garment from the, you know, the, the, the guy who picks the cotton to the 10 people that helped him sort it out to then the spinner, then the maybe like I don't know, 20 people that are involved in spinning the yarn all the way up to the, the, the shipping of the actual fiber to the factory that they made the, made the fabric from then the rolls of fabric and then how many different, you know, all the cataloging systems. And then, you know, so there's a lot of people that touch that fabric even before it's even cut really. And then, but then we haven't even touched on the, the imbalance or the fact that, you know, all cotton garments are made with petro petrochemicals. You know, these are no garment, no indigo is beautiful or it's, it's petrochemical. It's, 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 it's mm, made synthetic from, indigo derived it's, from petrochemical. Yes, exactly right. So it's like, so it's a, it's a chemical indigo, that a German science, science, scientist made at the, you know, just at, at the turn of the nine, 19th century. And, and, this particular fiber, it, the main ingredient is is benzene, which is r- r- rat poison. And, you know, these things are, this is still the same ingredient that we use now, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are some amazing companies that are developing more sustainable dye s- solutions, but some of them are still petrochemical based. So that's a, that's, that's, a, that's a problem. But then there's been recent, recent advancements where you can now, you know, there's a company um, begins begins with a T. I've forgotten their name. You probably might know them, but they've developed an indigo that's based from like back from like natural indigo, like sort of, or sort of like bacteria. And they haven't figured Tonello? out a way. No, no, no. It's not 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 like Tonello. It's an American company, and they've they were at uh, Kingpin's uh, Transformers event. I think this time last year. It could have could have been probably last April. But um, they basically announced it and they showed the concept behind it. And they're just—it's going to take another five or six years for it to become more mainstream. So there are versions of indigo that aren't petrochemical based, and of course, we know that the process of making jeans—it use—you know—two thirds of the water that's used to make a pair of jeans is actually in the growing of the cotton part. You know, and then um, mm-hmm. so you can eliminate that by using hemp or tensile or some other 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 natural or, or semi-natural fibers that are more sustainable mm-hmm. and um yeah, they don't require the, nearly as much water to that, grow exactly that don't require as much water to grow and you know and um so and, and it's come to light that even even hemp also is this is an amazing alternative especially with the new cottonized hemp that they came up with in the late late 90s or late 80s so, so sorry so there are a lot of solutions and to just say that um we're not being that the company's not thinking about being sustainable there's many ways you can be sustainable and there's many ways that you can market yourself to be doing the right thing so it's just um just picking the right picking the right picking the right things to choose really but there are many denim advisors now who can definitely advise on the right things to do it's just whether or not the companies will will, will want to do it if they want to invest in that extra 50 cents on this extra fabric which uses less water or they invest in a new tornello or like genealogia like machine to finish the garments that, that they're making that they're selling. I, I don't know. It's just, it's just, um, it's just education on that part. And, and there's many mill owners who are very much about the bottom line, a race to the bottom really. But COVID has really hope, hopefully woken a lot of people up saying that we can't just keep on going to the race to the bottom. It, it should be just a happy medium now and more, more about doing positive things for the industry and for the planet. Sorry to be, uh, 
a tree hugger now, but yeah, that's how I think. How I feel mm, well, it. we all need to be if we want to still have trees <laughs> in about 10 years from now. Uh, I'm just wondering how you balance all this when you're working as a fabric designer. Because mm. in, in designing fabric, it's not something like a finished garment or a collection where um, you have the ultimate say on what the consumer is going to interact with, that you're sort of working within a lot of these hard boundaries of price and fiber content and uh, feel and shade to fit a specific designer's need. So it's mm. almost like meta designing yeah. there. and. Like, what is that process like? And like, what sort of variables do you have to work with? As I'm familiar with like, you know, yarn twist and cotton type and mm. uh, different fabric treatments and, you know, the different weight of each yarn. But it's, it's I think for a lot of people that are going to be listening, they won't like this is so far beyond what any denim consumer ever really has to think about. Yeah, it's true. Um, I was wondering if you could go into like the basics of what are the different variables in designing a fabric and what those uh, impact the ultimate product. I think the easiest way to sum it up for a, for a customer of, you know, who, who would go who visit Heddles, who reads your articles, it's a bit like how Bayzed and the guys are uh, naked and famous, you know, they, they design fabrics, but they do it in such a clever way that it's just story driven. So they have a concept and, you know, and they take it through. They might develop maybe, you know, you might not know, they might have like 10 versions of this fabric and they land on the one that is just about commercially right it fits the price bracket that they, they're going to sell their, you know, 150 or to $250 jean. So they, there is a price variable that they're working to. But for me, um, I end up designing fabrics. I don't, I don't necessarily look at the price first. I actually look at the story. So I'll give you an example. I've been doing a, a couple of different um, projects regarding hemp at the, at the moment. And um, so, yeah, we have to definitely design fabrics that a, a Levi's or a Gap would, would buy. So we need to make sure that it hits that price bracket. So whatever we do, and hemp right now is still quite expensive. It's 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 nearly uh, twice the amount as cotton. So if you if you work it out, it, so it's like you know. So you have to be very careful. That's why you don't find any garments that are 100% hemp yet because it would just be mm-hmm. too expensive. So you've always got a 20% blend or a 30% blend. Um, I remember Levi's did a hemp blend that was back in the 90s and in 1999 for the first red collection. It was a 40% hemp blend that they produced. High. But this was using even natural indigo. So this fabric was a Japanese wow. fabric. Um, it was a Japanese fabric. I think it was made by Toyoshima or one of the other more prominent uh, artisan mills. The fabric would have been about $20 a meter. So, you know, and that's unrealistic now. But that was for a concept collection. So I, I still think like I'm a concept designer. So for me, I, I would draw up a wish list of maybe 20 different versions of that fabric. So it'll be different weights from if I'm going to have a shirt. So I need to make sure I have an eight ounce if it's going to be slight medium weight, I'll have a 10 to 11. And then I'll go heavy from 14 to 16 to 18. And maybe maybe cap it at about 18 or, or like 20. So for me, mm-hmm. anything over 18, it's just even though even though I have designed a fabric that was 38 ounce and it was really quite a fun project to do, it is pretty much unwearable. You know, if you're planning to have any kids, it's not an advisable, <laughs> not an advisable thing to be wearing. <laughs> so wearing that something that, yeah. that heavy. Um, it's a very specific consumer of 38 ounce denim. Oh no, it's, it's purely it's purely concept driven. Purely it's, novelty. It, it's purely novelty. You know, I understand it's it's a race to become the heaviest. I think Naked and Famous have just done a 40 ounce, and they've already announced that they they they. You know, I think Carabo or could have been Karuki have done a 50 ounce, which I think they're buying it from. Anyway, it, it it's it's just a really fun novelty thing to do, and it's fun. Don't get me wrong, but um, so what I'll do is when I'm designing this hemp denim, I, I will do a wish list, I'll do an Excel chart really of maybe 20 different variables, different warp and wefts. So, and I know there's, 
different types of cotton now. There's obviously organic cotton. There's there's conventional cotton. There's also different types of hemp. Like there's a wet spun hemp, which is the older style hemp. So it's kind of like a a like linen type is very uh, scratchy. And then you've got the new cottonized hemp, which is, to be honest, it looks pretty much like cotton. So, but they've gone through another treatment. So you can do different variants of like having 10% of wet spun, another 10% of cottonized on the warp and different one on the weft. And you can have an indigo one, you can have a duck color one. So I've just done a wish list of if I was designing a concept collection for an LVC, what, what would they pick? That's basically and you're how. just dreaming all this up uh, before even going to a fabric lab and oh, yeah, you know, yeah, seeing yeah, what completely. this stuff actually I would do, feels like. I would do my little Excel chart. I'll definitely, um, I'll first of all make sure what yarns are available. So I would ask the technicians of that company, "Hey, what yarns have you got available?" And they'll tell me we got this amount, we got this much warp from this mill. We got. They'll tell me what they've got. They could have like you know a special. Uh, cotton that they've got from parts of China. They've got a special one from India. They've got an, an, another one from America. So all these different types of cotton also influence the texture. And um, and also hemp, which is a quite amazing. It, it, when you when you start using hemp, especially, um, it, honestly, it looks like a fabric. It's from the 20s. It's very slubby. It's very dry hand feel. It's like even I was speaking to Miles Johnson, ex-Levi's, uh, ex-Patagonia. We were both both ex- excited about hemp because the, the it looks like it's from the 20s. If, if For a denim head, this should be the ultimate fabric, to be honest, because cotton, as you, 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 I'm sure you know, has been like genetically modified quite a lot. You know, the fact that um, mm-hmm. it, the same as food, right? So it's been yeah, it's like modi- the red delicious apple, that, like <laughs> all the variation completely. and all oh, the flavors has been taken out of it. Yeah, so cotton has been genetically modified so much that it can be grown in any kind of climate. It gives you great yields. It's you know, there's certain variants, but if you're in Pakistan or America, there are different different strains, of course. But it's been genetically modified quite a fair bit. So getting to this older strain of cotton, be it Sea Island cotton or one of these other ones that are super duper old, is very hard to find and very hard to convince um, a cotton grower to, hey, do you mind going to this older strain? Because they need to spend five or six years harvesting it and building up that crop. And, um, you know, doing crop rotation messes things up. So it, it, it's, it's a big commitment for someone to switch. Even there's, there's you might know, there's there are different types, different colors of cotton as well, from a brown cotton that they use, the, the very first duck garments, we're using a brown cotton. It wasn't a colored colored cotton. So it's so many different variants of cotton and there's so many different variants of hemp now. So yeah, you can have an endless Excel chart of maybe 20, not 100 different variants. So I whittled it down to 20 based on different weights because I want to do a shirt. I want to do an overshirt. I want to do an overall, of course. I want to do a jacket, like a, like a type one or type two. And I want to do some diff- different kind of style pants, maybe a good 10 ounce for a really um, old school kind of pant. And then another straight up like 14 ounce good good weight you know or, th- or 13 and a half or whatever so that's my wish list and it's been quite a fun ride and then after that then mm-hmm. i would give rain to the company who i'm developing for because their technicians are obviously developing these fabrics for me then they would go off and develop other versions based based off mine so then they would say okay we love Mawson's development number five let's do a commercial one for like levi's let's just cut you know let's just do one that we can get down to three dollars or, or whatever it is so They'll use that as a inspiration for the character of it or the color of it, and so then, so what they can how, strip away to the point where they can hit their their price uh, wish list. Yeah, but then they would then when, when they go to a trade show, be it a Kingpins or Premier Vision or whatever it is, a Munich Fabric Star, they would show off one or two of these concept fabrics. That uh, that would be the one they used on the f- photo shoot. But then when the customer comes on the booth, goes, "Hey, I can't afford that fifteen dollar fabric." Going, don't worry, we've got the free 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 dollar one right 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 here. We've even got it in your the the shade that that you like because they obviously it's one of their customers so they've already developed half these things in advance 
and they will develop. Uh, but you want to be able to show off the capabilities of what the mill can do. Yes. Um, and what they're capable of. It's just saying like, okay, we can, we can do this too. It's like the a diffusion line already built in. Absolutely right. And whenever you develop anything, you should always have a diffusion line. Even when I was a designer more than 20 years ago, I would design the craziest artisan piece I could, you know, the one on the stand, the flamboyant one. But then I would always have to be told, Mawson, can you do one that a uh, top shop would buy? Or can you do one that will sell at the high street brand? So then I have to do a watered down version with a basic zipper, with, with the less stitching, with no twin needling. And, you know, it's like you always have to, and that's the difference between a good designer and a bad designer. It's like, you you know, a good designer, when they're getting put on the spot, they're gonna, they got less, less than, you know, when I designed for Timberland, for instance, um, at VF, every season I'll design about 60 to 80 garments. Okay. And I would only, even though we would spend six months doing that collection, the design part would only be probably about four or five days, which is quite shocking, really. So, but four or five days, some, so you're doing like 20 garments a day. It, it, and... <laughs> you'd knock them out. Basically, what it is that you do no. a lot of research beforehand. So, there will be someone involved telling you at the beginning of the season, going, This is what sold last year. So, they'll give you kind of a, not a PDF in some respect of maybe 20 pictures of like the things that I've done really, really well for the company this time last year can you do move-ons for these garments? So you just have to just tweak them or slightly update them. And then more so in the last 20%, you can do whatever you want. But it has to be in this 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 price. So this can be your uh, your wish list garment, but it has to be in a certain price bracket. And, and then, that's what you spend like 80% of your time uh, pretty devoted much. to. So you, design, so you design a lot of it on past carryovers. You would tweak the pocket shapes or you'd update the stitching colors or design new washing treatments, let's just say. And then... You know, then you would update the fit if you have to, because if you notice every season, every few seasons, the fits change, even if it's the same style, you might find, oh, this pant fits differently now because people's, you know, designers and, and mindsets change. Like a, a jacket shape should be smaller now or the, the cuff should be more higher or whatever it is. So every now and again, even now I look at a garment and go, oh, that looks a bit crap. And I change the shape, you know, so it's a different variant of the same garment. So there's a lot of that kind of work. And then most of the time is actually spent on admin uh, communicating to the factories and picking thread colors and buttons and designing tech tech packs like a good designer can ideally pattern cut i mean most most designers can't they can just do a tech pack drawing and then they'll pass it to another designer who do a technical drawing so it, it gets gets get more watered down so for me yes I, i've been involved in every aspect of it so i can design everything but i know many designers who who just do the do the black and white drawing and might reference something and then there'll be another designer that comes on who does a technical drawing and helps them through it and the product designer and blah, blah, blah. so there's more people involved I've completely went off on a tangent from what you asked me. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> well, it all sort of naturally flows together. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, I, it's I, like I, having that knowledge of every single aspect, I imagine, makes you it makes it easier to do each one or at least like easier to get your ultimate vision out the other end because you know how it's going to be interpreted in every stage. It's like I, tech I, packs yeah. um, uh, are a thing that I, I feel like um, probably a lot of consumers aren't familiar with, but in my understanding of it, it's basically like this is how you teach the factory how to make your design. Yeah, it's like the blueprint. So, okay, any one of us can do a little sketch of a pant that we like, you know, whether or not it can be understood by a pattern cutter or someone who's going to input it to the fa for factory. Now, if you work with a really good factory, in theory, you don't even need to do a tech, a tech, tech back. You could just do a black and white drawing, a front and back yeah. drawing, and maybe some detailed pictures of the pocket front pocket back pocket with some basic diagrams of how you want the stitching to be how wide the stitching should be what yeah, the and their product development team can just run with that yeah, and then the factory the factory have got their own set of designers who would then reinterpret that for you and then as long as you 
tell them what shape you like. It could be a, I don't know, a, a, like a Levi's block you reference or a Telesan block half or whatever it is, or you've, you've bought a garment or you physically pattern cut something yourself from scratch going, I want it to be this shape. My shape I'm giving you is a size 32. Could you grade it please for me? So it goes down to, I don't know, whatever it is. And then it goes up to a 48, you know, at the end. So we, let's get the, the medium correct. And then after we've signed it off, then you grade it accordingly. But, um, but no, it's it's actually to be a good designer, you can cut through everything extremely quickly and 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 design to a brief. So yeah, one minute I'm I'm designing for the high street, so I'm designing no joke a, a six dollar pants, and another minute I'm designing for my own brand or a ten sale or whatever, and I'm designing a brand a garment that costs over two hundred dollars just to make. So it's a pretty premium garment. So it's understanding both ends of the spectrum. And I I in my archive I do have really crap garments as well because I have to understand them like. I had a niece who worked at like worked at like sort of like McDonald's, and she stopped working there. And I remember she used to wear like these McDonald's jeans, and I always looked looked at them, going, "Okay, these look like the most hideous pairs of jeans I've ever seen in my life." And I said, "Well, when you give up your job, can you just save those pairs for me?" And she, you know, lo and behold, she did give up the job, and she literally dropped around the pair of jeans to me, going, "Here are those jeans that you wanted." And I went, "Thank you so much." And literally, it's the most hideous thing I've ever seen in my life how it's been like constructed. But McDonald's, like the fast food restaurant the brand fast jeans. food restaurant. They in in England and parts in Asia. I do remember seeing they used to wear denim jeans with the, with the McDonald's golden arches on the back pocket. Yeah, and I was about to say they have golden arches uh, <laughs> arcs. It's but these are the most hideously made jeans ever. They're probably can you post pics of those? I can. I'll, I'll send you some pictures. It's um it's remarkable how they've been made because they they're literally all about it's all about how it looks, but it doesn't at all work. So none of the pockets work. They're all closed up. Because they don't want the employees to hold things or put things in their pockets. So they're fake pockets mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, the inside of it is overlocked to absolute shit. Um, and it's been made really fast. You know, so it's just like, obviously, you know, they, they've used some factory. They, they don't want to spend much money on making these garments because they have so many workers. Of course, they just, they just want it to look good and they want it to be functional. They want to make sure that they, the person wears it every day and they wash it and it still keeps the color. So it's really so. There's no uh, there's no ring dying here. It's like a, like a chino, I'd say. Yeah. So it fade doesn't fade. It's just it's just really interesting. So again, that that's a, that's designing for a purpose. So as long as you understand yeah. what the purpose is, then you save the company money, and then you're doing your your job. So yeah, I've no. Yeah. I think that whoever designed them knew who knew exactly what they were doing. You know, and hats off hats off to them. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, things need to fit their specific purpose. As I imagine, yeah, the person that was the creative lead that was ultimately making the decisions on that was someone that was more used to designing like French fry cups and like hamburger wrappers. Yeah, but they probably relied on a factory. That all they did is they yeah. they probably told, went to a factory in China or wherever it was they made it, and they said, "Look, the only only requirement is it has the golden arches on the back pocket, and you can't uh, you can't scale or like, manipulate the arch." There's a they, you know they probably gave them the rules that you can't move it or shift it mm-hmm. too much and that's it and they said can you make the stitching t- tonal that's all they that's all they pretty much said or can you make it tobacco stitch or whatever and, we're, and it needs to be two dollars fifty uh, all in you know yeah, like per, delivered, unit. You know, per, per unit or whatever whatever two dollars or whatever that's it or one dollar ninety or whatever they whatever it is they asked for and we need ten ten thousand pieces please you know so it would have been something like that that would have been said but no a, a good designer uh, designs to a brief and you know if you're lucky enough that you can design really premium garments you're in a lovely position but most designers you know they're not they're 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 in positions where they have to follow exactly what the company is telling them to do 
they get to do some great research, but half of them, they don't get to experiment like they like to. So it's very frustrating as well being a designer. And, and knowingly, you know, there's a lot of burnout as well. You don't get many designers that, that stay at it after 20, 30 years. You know, they, they fizzle out or they end up doing something else. So um, it's a very difficult game to stay on top of. But I've been lucky enough to always balance it out through education and teaching and consulting. So I haven't... Um, I don't feel I've felt the burnout phase yet because whenever I get annoyed at, in the industry, I have two months of teaching. I teach students who are 18 years old and that's really like rewarding. So then I go back to working for a client again and it's quite refreshing. So um, mm-hmm. I've, kept, I've kept a balance in some like, respect. And, always, and I've always, I remember when I, was, when, I was, when I was a student, I used to have like people that were te- teaching me outside like, like sort of lecturers and they were still in the industry. And I always respected that. And whenever I've met anyone who's, you know, who's been a lecturer and they've just been a lecturer for 20 years, actually, they don't really know exactly what's been going on in the industry anymore. They don't attend these trade shows. They don't read up on things as much. So actually having a consultant designer who is also lecturing on the side is probably more informative and more better for the college because that designer is still active in the industry, but they're giving back to the students and giving them knowledge, you know, or from the latest foam dyeing to whatever um, firsthand and getting sponsorship deals through the actual companies. So it's been a, a rewarding thing that I've been involved with. And, and Andrew Olan, lots of and Tencel, lots of people have been um, acknowledging it now. Again, we want to be involved in all the education work you're doing. So it's been really like quite fun um, doing all of that and having other people come to me saying we want to be a part, part of it. So it's been really like rewarding. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, on the other end of the McDonald's gene, and I guess designing <laughs> to specific uh, uh, requirements from a, uh, from a brand, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Endrime and mm. how it, it seems to be the like entirely experimental side and just uh, designing not necessarily to fit a, a a price, but to sort of push the boundaries of what denim jeans are at the moment. Yeah, and absolutely. You, yeah, you're using a lot of like um, really sort of forward thinking um, design techniques like arcs and darts and mm. like. Uh, ergonomic tailoring, I believe, is the the term that you yep. use. And yep. uh, I remember there are just like some uh, designs that are, are are products that you had for sale. I remember there was one a few years ago that was entirely stitched by hand. That was that's like right. two thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. But, no, I've I've always done experimental things. I think that's big, that's that's the fashion designer in me. Obviously, most denim people that I meet are are owners who own mills or whatever it is, and they just want to you know get a Levi's pant and put their back pocket on it. And that's about it. But for me, it's never been about that because I have worked for Levi's and I have worked for lots of these bigger companies. When it came, when it came to designing for my own brand more than 10, 10 years ago, I made a point of like, well, I don't like the way how they construct things. It's, that's been a very obvious thing for me from the very beginning. So I said, I just yeah, want to, it's been I, done. It's mm. been done. Yeah. I, it's not about copying them. I said, I, I can, I can make it better. Obviously they're, they're trying to make it fit into a $3 bracket into a $3 price. That's the reason why it's made like that. But for me, if someone's going to spend 150 or $200 on a pant, it should be finished at a slightly more better or to the best possible way that we could do. It was never about customers. At that. The early part of my uh, Endrime, um, when I started Endrime, it wasn't about selling to shops or selling to clients. It was just purely about designing a pant that I would feel really happy about making. So um, it was all about constructing it in a really modern way, still still using chain stitch and still using um, you know the, the, the roping effect from the 43200G and all these things that are that make a gene that make a characteristic gene and picking fabrics that are more slubby in nature and you must understand that the, the, um, to pick a 
most people who pick fabrics now, a lot more people are more knowledgeable about fabrics. When you feel, when you look at fabric, you get excited. Oh, that's a, got a great slub pattern on it. But 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't really like that. It was, it was only a certain amount of people that understood that part of it. In brands like Naked and Famous and Nudie and these other brands who have made more uh, jeans that are a bit more accessible for these, these premium jeans, it's, it's educated a lot of people in a positive way. So, um, so I was, um, I just wanted to design a jean that, uh, uh, first of all, uh, was made in a way that no other one had made it before. That's first thing. So it was all about clean construction. And now that's become a foundation to many other brands, for Black Horse Lane, to a lot of new modern brands that are coming on now. I was saying, oh, we believe only in clean construction. The inside is just as important as the outside. All these things I've been saying from the very, very like, beginning. And even I'm one of the first brands that was super-duper transparent about where my fabric came from. I remember you know, it was more than nine years ago where I started putting Carabo and Kaihara labels inside my garment. And my, my business partner at the time said to me, Morsin, why are you telling everyone where your fabric's from? And I said, it's only because it just saves me the trouble of like remembering because <laughs> the people who buy my <laughs> stuff will ask me, which, where's the fabric from or which, which, or which like machine have you used to finish it or whatever it is, you know? So I just made it a mission. Going, Typical okay, well, denim nerd make- questions. Yeah. Lots of, and then, when you get to this sort of level of garment making, you do get those nerds and there's people who would only buy it if it's finished on a certain machine or if it's yeah. made from and a which very- generation of 43, 200 G. Exactly right. Is it first, second or third, or is it one of these? Frankenstein ones that's been put together with very various other like machines or whatever it is. So um, so I, I was just very transparent and I did it purely just just to because I like documenting everything as I go and even some of the other collections I've done for other clients, they've been very surprised by it. Going wow, not only have you designed this collection for us, you've done the history of it, you you've done a, a whole document, a PDF about everything about the garment. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, you can't just slap. You know, if you're going to do a garment about overall, let's research the overall, let's research how it began, let's research the early early, early origins of it and all the research will inspire the design but um yeah so and then when it came to the fits and the ergonomics i i did a collection um in the early part of my career i actually worked for, for like for like puma or all like up humor the sportswear company and i did um i worked on their motorsport department for probably about a year or so it wasn't it wasn't the right job I, 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 actually i was there to do to lead their denim department but then all of a sudden i was taken off that when i arrived and, and they said well there's something happening with the board we're not going to give you that role yet, but you can head up the denim like department. I mean, sorry, the motorsport department. It's quite similar. It's still design and it's still it's ergonomic. It's it's very workwear driven. But obviously, you know, I said sure, so I gave it a go. And, and while I was there, I designed all the MotoGP garments, all the racing garments that all the racing drivers wear. And you know, if you imagine someone sitting in a position in a bike and their arms are in a certain position, and you had to make this garment so it could only move and bend in a certain way. And it protects you in other ways. So that's pure ergonomics. So I did that for a year. And um, it was quite inspiring, actually. And then when it came to designing my own garment, then I, I, I've always believed that I don't, I'd never liked side seams and, you know, the obvious things, you know. So even when I was a designer, uh, a fashion designer, when I was studying fashion, I never had side seams. I always used to twist everything or morph things around. And my pattern pieces were very complicated, like A, Bs and Cs, and used to number them all and do a little diagram how it was put together. Even my uh, my tutors at the time thought I was in- insane for not just following a normal shirt block, and I'll just make it fit more properly because it didn't have side seams. So I was doing that kind of work more than twenty five years ago. So when it came to doing my own brand, I, I still had that same hat on. So I said, "Oh, let's get away with the side seam. Let's add um, some seams that help with with the fit that help you fit, help you sit forward better in a position. If you if make sleeves a bit longer, so if you're on a bike, it protects your sleeve, protects your arm. And I was just doing things to fit a certain mindset. And um, and then I added darts as well. So darts are something that you do for shapes 
obviously on a pair of jeans, what makes a pair of jeans different to anything else? I remember having a conversation about it with someone that I'd met, met just ra- randomly at, at a wedding. And this guy told me, what do you do? And I said, I'm a denim designer. And this guy said to me one word, yokes. It's all about yokes. And I went, damn right. <laughs> so this, this guy who doesn't know anything about fashion knew about it. He goes, no, because a jean has a yoke. And if it's got a yoke, it's it's the gene, and I went pretty much. You're correct because if, if because um you know yes it's a it, 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 the yoke was you know something that came about quite early on from early work work early workwear, but um you know most chinos have darts that go down from the pocket or from the waistband, so it's just because you need a bit of shape when you above the bum and going into the waistband it, it, it sort of it eats into yeah. a bit, so you need a bit of shaping to help you fit better so it doesn't fall fall down. So it's not that flat drop. Uh, not that flat drop oh, the very early early garments from the 1860s and 1870s didn't even have darts they just had a cinch so they just got away with it they didn't care about the fit too much and so they cinched it up and it made made you fit which is also cool 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 as well but um i i decided to put dart manipulation in to a lot of the things i did and and, and it's only because i studied like sort of women's wear so and um i've always been told as a young designer that you know there's no masculine or feminine you know nowadays yes there's a masculine feminine way of doing certain positions or buttons and things like that but when it comes to dart manipulation many people thought it was a very feminine thing to do so i decided to put it in all my men's men men menswear just to just to question it really and um, that was it that's how it began so it was just just form-fitted garments and you know it was a time and place but nowadays it's more about very much ill-fitting garments very baggy shapes so that that's the stage what we're at now but it will it will go back to well-made and well-finished garments soon well, it has to so it will come around again but that's what I'm trained in. So yeah, quite funny. I don't know if I answered your core question at all. But about oh no, I, I think that um, that got into it. Is that I'm interested also in talking about um, sort of where you think things are going because I, I do agree that they're uh, probably trending back towards slimmer fits. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the interesting theories that I heard about why those were popular in the late 2000s was the outcome of a global recession <laughs> and that it something that like literally used less fabric and like uh, emphasis on greater uh, construction was to try to make things that were less gaudy and more intentional and more uh, designed to hold up longer as you know people didn't want to have sort of flashy, uh, more brand-oriented type things. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it seems like we're headed very quickly towards another global recession, if yeah. we're not already in one right now. And uh, that a lot of those same trends uh, will come back. I mean, trends that we never really left in our corner of the market. I think, but that they will start some, to become the thing again. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. I think the something that I've noticed in the last few years, even from teaching young students who are 18, 19 years old, is a lot of them question the amount of waste that we produce. Now, nowadays, you can go to any factory, be it a sortie or an Avena or whatever, artistic or any of the, or Kaihara or Karuki, whatever all of them recycle all the waste yarn. So whenever they make any fabric, there's all the leftover bits or things that have gone wrong and they recycle it back into the system again. So they're, they're completely, there's no wastage going on. But then yeah, what when they're doing to, is great. What, the, the garments what themselves. Is great. And, and yeah, and, and even when I worked at Edwin you know, more than 18 years ago, or whatever it was, we were doing recycled yarns even then. And the Japanese have been leading on this than more than anyone else. I think the Pakistani friends, they've woken up to it quite recently. You know, they got their own, own like shredder machine, which also like you guys like visited back in sort of AFM or whatever. And that, that's super duper important. But our Japanese friends were doing it for many, many years, like like kind of like before. But um, what I'm getting at is, is that all these students and all these people that I've been, te- been teaching, we've been coming up with clever ways of doing pattern cutting that has no wastage. So 
Uh, you're familiar with a designer called Isimiyaki. He's a very um, oh yeah um, yeah. So he Japanese he designer from the Japanese 80s designer, and 90s, very, very avant garde, very avant garde, very artisan. And obviously, this this is because I'm a fashion designer now. He designed garments where it was kind of like a, a roll of fabric, and you'd cut into it in a certain way, and you'd stitch it, and that'll be it, and it will fit you perfectly. There'll be no cutting out or cutting out circles and cutting out armholes or things that are wasted put on the floor. The entire fabric was still used. And just so manipulating that one sheet. Just cuts manipulating that one. You know, some really clever dart manipulation and clever cutting going on. But at the end of the day, it would look like a wearable garment. It wouldn't look like some a clown pant or something that weird that you would, it would actually look like a wearable garment. That might look a bit slightly strange, but once you get used to it, it looks quite cool. So a lot of the students I've been teaching for the last few years, we've been designing denim garments and general garments that have no waste, no wastage at all. And there's a girl who's just graduated from the Royal College of Art who I've been teaching, who actually won my Kaihara sponsorship because I sponsor for the last six years, I've been sponsoring about five to six students every year and I highlight their work. And, you know, at the end of the year, which is about now, we do a little round round up what they're doing even amy leverton helps me post about a few of these students who are amazing but this particular student has done this entire collection using no wastage on denim garments and it's been quite remarkable mm-hmm. seeing seeing it. and she's got it all laser finished in la genealogia and you know so it's just it takes someone who just spent a little bit of energy to design a garment with no wastage so none of this you don't have to recycle any of the mm-hmm. leftover fabrics that are on the cutting room floor anymore if you just design in a clever way you can save a lot of energy and a lot of time. And you don't have to recycle it. That's way more efficient just to not have waste. Way more efficient. So it's just just thinking outside of what what people expect. You know, like I remember there's a brand, I was on a panel the other day with this brand. (laughs) It was a t-shirt brand that I've done very, very well. And they sell millions of t-shirts every year. And apparently they're the most sustainable t-shirt brand in, in, in the planet. And I just said to him going, well, that's great. But what do you do with all the left leftover bits on your t-shirts? Going, oh, you know, we recycle it back in system again. I said, wouldn't it be better if you just designed a t-shirt that didn't have any wastage? I remember coming across a lot of Levi's garments in the archive, seeing a, a Levi's bag made out of a duck canvas. There was no wastage in it. You know, it was like a really wide, I'll send a picture of this bag and you'll see what I mean. It's a really wide bag, salvage to salvage. It's just been folded in an, or, in an origami way. It's been stitched in a cool way and it's got, a, it's got a, a strap, a leather strap and that's it. There's no wastage at all in this fabric. It's just been folded and like, manipulated in a certain, a certain way. And they were doing this back in the 1840s and 1850s. So Out of it, necessity, I would out imagine. Out of necessity. Lack of material. Better. Yeah. And you look, when you look at a Japanese like kimono and you look at it and you actually take it apart, it's just strips of fabric. Nothing's been cut. It's just strips of narrow 12 inches to 14 inches strip uh, selvage you know, uh, fabric done on the hand, ha- hand loom indigo dyed and they've just pieced it put it together they've manipulated it in a certain way so it looks like a kimono that's why it looks like a kimono because it hasn't been cut it's just been manipulated and folded in a certain way so it's just thinking slightly differently those guys they did it because obviously they spent you know many hours of their day some old auntie was making this fabric on her hand loom she doesn't want to cut into the fabric she wants to reuse the fabric later it can be used as something else if the kimono has no life anymore. They just unravel it or they unpick the stitch and you've got these lovely long strips again that can be made into some, something else or a blanket or something like that. So we were doing this in the past. It's just we kind of lost our way. So it takes a student of fashion who thinks it's really stupid that we're cutting things. Going, Why don't we just manipulate it so it's an origami thing or why don't we go back to thinking a bit differently? So that's what's been inspiring uh, for me as a designer 20 years in in the game going wow you know there's students who are teaching me now 
I should re- I should revisit. I should make a try and make a selvage pattern that has no cutting in it at, at all. You know, and one of the students at Ravensbourne that we I teach at as well, and they're the ones that do the um, they're sponsored by Kingpins as well and Transformers Foundation, and they one of the fifteen groups they ended up doing a collection with Carabo. And Karabo sent them the KD8 fabric, which I'm sure you know, which is the very first fabric they developed in like, Japan. They, they, like, re- they like, reproduced it this one year. And they sent the, this particular group, of, I think about 30 or 40 meters. They ended up making an entire collection that had no wastage at all. They used the selvage From to just that 30 and 40 uh, yeah, meters yeah, so they, of fabric. They calculated that the fabric, the, this particular selvage fabric was 77 centimeters wide. So they, they called their collection 70, 77 like, centimeters. That's what they called it. And they designed all their pattern pieces to fit inside 77 centimeters. And this is someone independent from the other college that I was te- teaching. I didn't inspire them or tell them what to do. They also came to a natural conclusion going, wouldn't it be nice to develop a collection that had no wastage at all? So, so is it, a lot of younger people are thinking like, is it the younger generation that are waking up to it? And they're definitely going to have a lot of solutions for our generation. And you know, even like, you know, the generation that caused the, the most amount of problems are the generation from the 80s. And, and the seventies that did all the stone washing and all the horrible chemicals that we that are banned now, but um, you know, so yeah, it's very interesting. It's a very interesting time. It's a very exciting time from all the new technologies that are coming out, to all the new ways of finishing, from like Giorgio Tornello to the ways of pattern cutting and manipulating fabric to even how I made a collection with a stu- with a group of students and they used radio waves to make a collection. So they bonded the fabrics through radio waves. No stitching was involved. Really. Mm. Like sort so, of like then, microwaving them together, almost. Sort of, yeah. It's hard to explain, but it's like it's like a gun, and you can radio, you can, you can weld the seams without any sewing machine, and it it, it, it kind Do of they like, like melt together. It doesn't melt. It like needle punch. I don't know if you're familiar with the firm where you have two bits of fabric and you get a needle and you you poke it, poke it, poke it, and the fabric at the bottom it kind of merges through the the so it's other sort of like felts together. Felts together in some respect, yes. Oh. So it's like there's ways of not using because we know that polyester is the main component for thread now like all the garments that we use they're they're poly poly cotton so when you we know that polyester is a complete evil thing there's nothing good about it at at all you know the fact that nearly every garment is made from polyester is a real the next cancer of the world really that when no one's really talking about again doesn't degrade doesn't degrade 200 years it stays in the ground it just infects everything anything that can't die in indigo can't die anymore. We can die in indigo, but it takes a lot more time and a lot more, yeah. a lot more chemicals to do it. You need more chemicals to make it pick the fabric. It's polyester is a complete evil thing, and um, you know, and um, we've got used to it. We're it's a very strong far fiber. I remember there's a mill I'm consulting for, and they're like, "Oh, it would be great to do a polyester hemp blend." And I went, "Why would you even do that?" It's like hemp's one of the strongest natural fibers. It's stronger than cotton and linen. Forget the polyester. You don't need to strengthen it. So it's just it's just educating people. Um, about the processes of like, let's do it more natural. Try to do it more natural. Obviously, you need polyester for certain things. You can't just, you, can't, you, can't, you need plastic wrap for your food. There's certain things we need plastic for, of course. But um, if we can move away from it in fabric form, because most of the, the problems we're having in the seawater, and it, most of it's coming from the garments that we wash. It's not coming from the plastic bottles or whatever. Yes, it does come from that. But most of it's coming from you know, I, my sister washes her washes her jeans every single day. She's one of these people. She wears it. She puts it in the wash the same day. And you know, so I'm like, oh my god, you know. So she's she's one of that type of person who washes things constantly. And I'm like, in the olden days, you'd be lucky to wash things maybe once a year or, or every three years if you were lucky. You just you just brush it off with a comb or a brush. You know, and brush the dirt off, and you know, make it you condition it that way or whatever. So um, 
It's just thinking like you're a denim head. And that's just, uh, yeah, once every three years or whatever at all. Yeah, Yeah, no, no. But even I, you know, even I, you know, I do wash my jeans, but I wash them if they get a bit, bit dirty. I mean, uh, yeah, I have that. I try my hardest to, to wait three or four months if I can, but then if they're a bit, Mm -hmm. if they stink, I wash them, you know, and that's a simple case. And I don't do any of that turning it inside out to keep the color or, you know, washing it cold. I just do it normal. I don't give a rat's ass because, because back in the day, people didn't care about their genes, and that's how we should actually treat them, to be honest, to get the best results from them. Um, that's just me. That's just how I think about it. But no, it's all about being really clever, and especially with, with, like, with like manipulation and pattern cutting and knowledge. And that's why it's even more important doing these educational series that I've been doing, talking a lot more about fibers and educating how things are made, too, because so many people ask me questions. Even I did um, in my own Denim History Instagram channel, I decided because so many students ask me, I teach uh, four different colleges every year, more than three to 400 students I teach every, every year. And um, many of them ask me for reading lists of what books should I read or what. what and I, so I just got a bit annoyed about it. I'm going to do a little post about it on Instagram. And every, every day in May, I'm going to talk about one book that I think is important in the denim world. You know, don't think anyone's done that, done that before. So I just did that for a, for a laugh. And it, it became so popular and I had so many positive comments from it. So I might just carry it on. But um, hmm. yeah, education, education. For me, it's all about that now. And, you know, if I can get paid to just do that full time, I'll just do, do, do that. But lucky for me, I'm still involved in designing fabrics and it's very, like, very, like rewarding. So all along the way, I'm still using that knowledge that I'm gaining from these newer fabric collaborations that I'm doing and giving it back to the students pretty much live. So whenever I do a new experimentation within a few months of it coming out or within a month of it coming out, I show them, I show the students the video and the concept behind it. So they're pretty much up to date um, about what's going on in the denim world, in the fire fiber world. So, yeah. Oh. <laughs> That's <Ooh. me. laughs> oh, like As someone that is a bit more involved in the like global garment production scene than probably most people in the heddles like side of the industry Mm. i was wondering if you had any like insights into where sort of like global fabric production and global garment production would go after this is uh i've seen a lot of stories about like a lot of the high street brands are treating their suppliers horribly and canceling orders and asking for like 50 percent discounts and it seems like it's a way that is going to totally decimates uh, a lot of the uh, production centers in uh, South and Southeast Asia. And I'm wondering if like when things pick back up again, will there be pieces like, will those factories still exist? And will we still be making that many garments in uh, those parts of the world? Um, It's quite, it's very alarming what's been happening in the last three months, especially to how um, big brands have been treating their suppliers or their partners they call them their partners right so um it doesn't seem like a partnership that's no no partnership i can see no it's no partnership i can see it's it's a really okay so for me i'm 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 independent so i can speak my mind i i I don't represent anyone so that's a good position that i'm in i think it's frankly quite disgusting how a lot of this has happened to a point where i've been copied on emails from factories saying what should we do more sin this guy in this in this company in the in the UK, be it Arcadia or whatever it is, who own Top Man and Top Shop or whatever, they've refused to. We've already made the garments that they ordered in March. We shipped them out within two weeks. It's now in a boat. They're now saying they're not going to pay for any of it. They might pay ten percent towards it, or they or they just don't want it. You know, but this is something that they've ordered. We signed a con- contract with them. We we bought all the fabrics, we bought all the yarn, we allocated certain time for the factory for them. So 
I've already paid all my factory workers because they have, you know, we pay them every week. So now I'm out of pocket. What should we do? So it's a real tough one. There have been factories that have become bankrupt. There have been factories because there's lots of factories who, um, you know, many of these bigger mills. And I know this from experience now, whenever you meet a mill, be it a, a like Navina or, or a sortie or whatever it is, these companies, they've also got other companies that are helping them as well. So then they're part of a, of a, another a, a, like consortium of companies. So Novena, for instance, is it's a Japanese mill and they're the garment manufacturing mill. They also own construction. They own electricity plants. They own other things. They own infra- infrastructure. So uh, the garment side of their business is just one arm of their businesses. So if, if, if they're having problems there, they just shift money to another one. So, But some of these smaller companies in Bangladesh who are strictly only making garments, if they don't, if they're ten million out of pocket and they've got loan from the bank, and the bank is expecting them to pay them back, it, it, they it, they're in a real shit place, you know, and mm-hmm. for a point where they can't pay the workers. And you know, yes, a lot of them are rich. They don't get me wrong. If you if you're a, a company that has is involved with cotton and you're involved with millions and millions dollars business, fifty million dollars business every week or so, then yeah, you, you've definitely got enough money saved away that you could probably survive this process. But still, the owners aren't the ones that are going to be feeling the, the oh, no, they're, the they're not be the ones losing their house. No, no, no. They're not going to be the one losing their house. It's the workers. So the owners, all they will do, and I've seen it firsthand, I'm sure you have as well. They will just furlough their workers, tell them there's no work. at the, They wouldn't even furlough them. They'll say, there's no work at the moment. Uh, we're not going to pay you. We're going to pay you this, this week's wages as just a, as just, a, just being a nice, but for the next two months, there's no, no work or next three months, there's no work. We'll call you back where, when there's work. So then what do these people do? You know, a lot of these families and these people, you know, if there's one guy who's sewing in a sewing factory, that salary, he would support his family, but then he would also be supporting his mum and dad and maybe his cousins with that same, same salary. So one person, it affects three or four different families. So multiply that by, you know, 5,000 workers or 10,000 workers or 50,000 workers. And we've got a real serious issue in these countries. And it's not like the UK or the US where, you could just speak to your mortgage lender and get a um, and get a mortgage holiday. Like I got a mortgage holiday as soon as I found out of one of uh, my, one of my clients who happens to be one of these mills said to me, "Morsen, you know, they said to me very kindly, I'm so sorry, we we can't pay your invoice for February and March. We'll pay it. We'll pay it when we can. But can you just survive without it?" And I said, "I'm I'm sure I can survive without it at the moment because I'll just get a mortgage holiday on my mortgage. I'll speak to my mortgage lender. They'll I'll be okay for four months or whatever it is. So you know, but." People in the, in that part of the world, there's no such thing. There's no insurances involved. It's a real tough one, and there'll be people struggling to eat. It's uh, it's dev- and also because of COVID as well. There's in those parts of the world, they haven't even been taking care of themselves with um, social social distancing and things like that. So in parts of Pakistan and Bangladesh and those countries, they're in a really shit place. A lot of people are dying. It's not being documented as much as it is in the US or the UK, like a daily stats of how many people have died or. Yeah, nor do they have the medical resources or tests or exactly, uh, exactly. hospital it's, it's, infrastructure to take care of people when they do get sick at a higher level. Yeah, it's, it's just it's, it's just bad. The, all the situation is just bad, really bad. And then yeah, but then you get the mill owners who, you know, they just you know they'll just take a little holiday or they just they'll take it slightly easier. And to be honest, I've been more busier during this period than I have when I am normally working. I'll be honest with you. So um, um, but documenting this process because it's been really interesting for me. Um, hearing everyone's thoughts and documenting it because every week there's something going on every week there's even the, with the George Floyd stuff every week there's something really important that's been triggered by all the things that are happening and um, it's just really interesting but no it's a ship it's a ship problem and I'm not happy with 
the bigger companies like Primark and Target and, and Lian Fong and all these big companies who have thousands and thousands of employees who have just furloughed half of them, aren't paying their workers. Even there's a company in the UK called like Debenhams, you might have seen, you might have heard about it. They they have offices in Bangladesh and Pakistan. They just decided overnight to just close that office down and not pay their workers for their last month's wages. And that, 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 and there's that's no it. recourse yeah, it, that's for it. these, that's these it. workers. They didn't do anything. So it took the UK team, that was, a, was a, two designers called Sally and like Rowan, who are denim designers like me and consultants. And they decided to do a GoFundMe campaign to get money to pay for their colleagues. They were colleagues of theirs, ex-colleagues of theirs, even though they don't no longer work for that company. They're like, these are the people that picked us up from the airport who dropped us off at three in the morning, who made sure we were fed on time, who treated us like family for two months while we were in that country. And we can't just treat them like shit and not, not pay them. Yeah. So it's like, you know, so it's just, um, yeah, it's a, t- it's a real tough one. But I, I get really frustrated with, uh, especially because some of these mill, mill owners, they are super duper rich. They own other buildings. They own other parts of the businesses. There's one particular mill owner that I was speaking to who hasn't actually paid me yet. And this guy, he owns other factories. He owns real estate in Dubai. He owns malls, you know, all the rest of it. And I'm like, dude, just, just pay the people, man. Just pay them. You got the money for it. And he goes, no, no, I have to borrow from the bank. I can't pay them yet. No, you can. You just, you're just not thinking you can pay them. You just have to readjust what you're doing or take a cut or, or sell something that you, you own. Just pay your workers. Pay the people that have been earning money for you. You know, it, it's a real... don't do that. <laughs> no, it's not a partnership at all. It's not a partnership. It's a one-sided thing. And half of these contracts that these fast fashion companies have with these factories and suppliers, they're really shit. It's like, okay... We want you to we want you to make uh, two hundred thousand pieces of this pant. We want you to order the fa fabric. We want to order this specific colorway. So you have to dye all the fabric to this color. We need you, we need you to like deliver it to our warehouse in the UK. We want you to pay for all of the duties, all of the costs, and then after tw- twenty, then after forty five or six sixty days, we're going to pay you back. After we've sold it and we've after had the we've credit card it, cleared and th- there's no risk being yeah, taken by no any of these risk. Uh, companies no in the risk. West. There's no risk for them. You know, and then they're saying, and then they even say if they have clauses in their contracts. If you're delayed by one or two days, we will start discounting that amount that we need to pay you. Mm-hmm. D- discounting. So it's a real shit agreement that somehow these fast fashion companies have gotten on. There's some companies in Pakistan and who are very scared to speak out. You know, if you, you notice there's not much hoo-ha going on in that part in bangladesh yes uh, our friend Must- mustafa's who owns a, a denim factory mm-hmm. called denim yeah. ex- ex- expert and he owns he's a very very a big part of the, the bangladesh community of denim making he's been very vocal about who's not been paying him and he's really pissed off and you know he doesn't really he cares but he says look you know these people aren't going to pay pay me i'm like a hundred million dollars in in debt yes I, i've got some reserves i'm paying people still but there's only so long i can physically do do that and um, so he's, he's just been saying it. But our Pakistani friends and some of these other factories in Pakistan, they know that once they're out of COVID, they want to get that, they want to get that order again with a target or with a, with a, with a whatever. So they don't want to piss them off. So mm-hmm. they're just going to take, take, a, take a cut. They're going to accept the terms of, yeah, sure, we'll, take, we'll, pay, we'll, we'll, do it for th- we'll do it for like 30%. They'll rather yeah, take they have no hit. other options. Because they know that come October, like November, when things are going to slowly go back to normal again. And even we saw pictures, I saw pictures today of Primark and the high street in the UK opened up yesterday. And there was massive queues of people buying fast fashion again. And we, all of us in our denim group were really shocked and quite pissed off about it. Again, I wish they just didn't rush back to buy all the crap again. 
Um, yeah. But they need to kickstart the economy. I get it. But um, it's just a real tough one. But I think what's mm. going on is, is, is quite disgraceful. And, um, and, 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 you know, and all these people that have been deciding that there's, I think there's a list actually, it's quite a really important list of um, the, the people in these companies that have made these like decisions, like the buyers of top man and top shop who have decided not to pay the invoices. These people are going to find it very hard getting a job later. Like if any, if I meet mm. any of them, and if I'm in any positions of power, going, oh, oh, where were you? You know, on in March like 2020, or oh, I was working in Target, I was the head buyer, blah blah blah. I'll just say, dude, dude, you're, I'm not going to, not going to hire you for the practice that you did. You know, the the one judgment call, the one knee jerk reaction that you did, has ruined not just many people, many thousands of people's lives. Uh, entire countries, people's entire lives. Entire countries, uh, lives, livelihoods. It's, um, uh, it's really disgusting seeing this all like take place because it's always sort of been an exploitative uh, relationship yeah. that um, like mall and large brands have had with uh, in the West with the, their suppliers. But it's, it's just, uh, I haven't seen anything that is so um indicative of sort of how this is the next like evolution of colonization yeah but it and, happens um sorry to cut you off it always happens in in retail as well i remember for my own band my own brand Endrime, i used to make a collection i would go and visit a selfridges or whatever it is a high-end store and they said oh we love this collection do you mind sending us like you know two of each piece and uh we'll, we won't pay you yet we'll pay you after we've sold it so can you just produce it all and it might be mm-hmm. It might be consignment. me. A consignment order. It might be me spending three to four thousand dollars of my own money to make this collection, to make it in a factory in Japan, to ship it to them, to get by, to have it in their Pacific color or fit because they have special like like requirements because they're they want a, exclusives. They're a special store. They want that special exclusivity on a certain colorway or whatever it is. And there's minimums. And if I don't pay the minimums to the factory, I have to pay an, a, sur- a surcharge. So the, this way of working works all throughout the industry in every level to the buyers buying the fabric to even the stores getting consignment it's like a one way one way of treating people and they say oh it's a partnership or we work we're going to work for you we're going to help establish you and i'm like dude you're not you're just doing it for yourself you're you know you're the, we're a cool little brand you're taking advantage of and um yeah it's and if, sorry it's to hot cut potato with the debt yeah, yeah, yeah. We're the ones with the debt. We're the ones who has to get a loan or, or use our mortgage money or use our savings that we've saved up for. You know, me, my brand, Endrime, I think the first couple of years, I spent close to £200,000, you know, and, and, and that's a lot of money. That's like half a deposit for a big house in the UK, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, anyone who has a brand nowadays, I question it. And any student I meet, and I meet lots of students, they go, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to establish a brand next year. And I, I say to them, please don't. I said, just work for someone else. You know, work for someone else, make all the mistakes with their money, learn. And only when you <laughs> only when you're 10, 15 years in and you still think you want to have a go and you still think there might be an opportunity or a window of opportunity that you think you're you've got an idea which is special and it's different. And you know how to market it and you know all the right buyers now, you know all the supplier contacts, then have a go. But then I know Pierre brands who've done it very naively, who've gone into it not knowing anything and they've done very well. So it's a real tough one. <laughs> It's a tough one. It's a, you know, I'm being very, uh, I don't know, uh, I'm cynical. But yeah, I it's mean- definitely a difficult business that requires a lot of upfront money to make anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, unless you have special like connections or uh, already have an established audience, as we've been very lucky with exactly. like the got half a dozen products that we've been able to make. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, we've put up the money for some of them, others that with larger brands, they've been able to subsidize the production. Uh, it's, uh, 
And that's a really difficult thing, though, with the like relationship with a lot of these supplying countries is that there really isn't a lot of other opportunity. And the only way that uh, our current economic system can enrich those places is by exploiting them for cheap labor. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And yeah, yeah they're worse off with the factories closed than they are with them open. So it's just sort of a catch-22 of like, what is the way out of this? It is. And I remember you know, in, that, in, in that situation where I went to that factory and there were kids there, I asked one of the factory owners, you know, what's going on here? And he goes, oh, the parents are working for the factory. They, they live in the middle of nowhere. They brought their kids along to help them because they don't want them to be at home, home, home alone. So you start trying to understand both sides of the story. Going, okay, maybe, yeah, maybe having the kids with them on site makes more sense, but they shouldn't be working. You know, it's like, no. so it's, 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 it's like shit. That's a very Westerner's narrow view of it all because you need to make sure if it works. Obviously, how these factories work is, yes, they go and they go to like rural areas. Then most of these factories, they're not in city centers. They're maybe two or three hours outside of a city. So they go to the villages and other villages to collect the workers, to train them up. They have they give them housing. They do, they do take care of them in some like respect, but they, they are in theory slaves, most of, most of them, modern day slaves where... They're kept in the same for the same facility, and if there's an order and it's something urgent, they have to do the night shift. They have to, you know, then these factories, it's not like a nine to five. It is in the west. They, there's 24 hours here. There's 24 hours, so there's a, a three different shifts during the day: morning shift, afternoon shift, and an evening shift. And the factory is continuously working. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the it's, horrifying it, thing about it though is like those conditions are better than what they would be if the factory wasn't there. Which Absolutely, is just like no, no. sort of the mind-boggling thing of like yeah. But then you yeah. you hear you hear great things that are happening. Obviously, you know, um, I'm now being invited to many factories who, who, who they know I educate about the workers' rights and I, I educate people about what's going on. So there's a particular mill who you know called like Cytex, and they're based in like Vietnam, and, and mm-hmm. what they're doing is remarkable. So you know, this is a dude who's been in the industry for a very long time, and he decided to do his homework. He goes, okay, I'm going to open up a factory in Vietnam. I'm going to do it so it's it's using the latest like machinery. Another lead platinum it, facility. Another another yeah yeah but sure but these guys are doing it quite quite differently. So they they they're growing food on site. They're paying their workers properly. That you know it's all reflective and there's no ovens. There's no harsh chemicals being used. It's all mm. you. The whole story is about actually about the worker. The fact that they're a denim factory is the last thing they talk about. It's all about right. empowering. Not just what them. they happen to be making. It's uh, yes. what, what way can we enrich our workers' yeah, lives? And the, denim just happens to be the best way to do it. Exactly. They're, 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 they're one of the first mills to become a B Corp. You know, so they're doing things in a very different way. And I, there's other factories that I visited quite recently. And I said, just have a look at what Cytex are doing. Don't just don't get just have a look at what they're doing because it's quite inspiring. You don't have to do the model. You know, they're making they're showing me architectural drawings of their new factories and everywhere is full of trees and plants even in between the machines you know they've got like plants and and it's like they go food in the factory and it's like yes and they they have resources where everything is subsidized super duper subs sort of subsidized and and you know these factories even candiani their factory is in a nature like reserve so you can have these it doesn't have to be in an industrial in an, an industrial place anymore these denim factories if you if you know what you're doing and that's what's inspiring now is the new wave of denim manufacturers are thinking like this they're thinking okay we don't want to train people from the from the villages we want to get people that are very intelligent engineers to help us as well and it's just really inspiring so there are some amazing people doing 
quite remarkable things. And it will filter down to some of the people in Pakistan and, and in Bangladesh. In Bangladesh, they're doing amazing things as well. They really are. But, but that, at the same time, you're seeing some, really, seeing some really shit things as well. And so it's still going on. You know, so it's like when you're walking in a city, you know, there's always bad places to walk down or bad streets to walk down. It's the same thing here. There's, there's people doing good things and people doing bad things. And it's, it's highlighting the good people and educating the people. And I meet mill owners all the time and people that are new cotton growers. And I get extremely frustrated by it. And I, mean, I think I shook hands last year of like three people that opened a new cotton mill. And I said to them, I said to all of them, why are you doing cotton? And they said, oh, because it's easy. It's quick, quick. It's, it's like quick return. We can make our money back really quickly. And I said to them, why don't you just invest in hemp or go to, go to like Toyota in like Japan and invent a new spinning machine, a new technology that you can sell to other, other mills spend that no joke 100 million or half a half a billion dollars that you're making on this factory and do something more sustainable with it in, in, in instead you'll get your return maybe in 10 years time not in five years time you know it's just um everyone everyone wants a fast buck that's what it is that's what i've been finding it been frustrating well, hopefully yeah. as we come out of uh covid that it'll be more of the good things that will be emulated and not more the bad things as uh austerity sort of filters its way down yeah. and it forces people to innovate in a good way um not 100 percent confident that's going to be the case but uh we can keep our fingers crossed there are really positive things going on it's just whether or not the buyers and the people who are making the just making the decisions know know about it so that's what it is it's like the more you guys can educate your readers and, and there are many people who, who read lots of things, especially on headers and other websites as well, who, who get, who, you know, if we can influence one person who's going to make a, make a, make a big decision about buying fabric or deciding which country they're going to make their garments in, then we've done our job, you know, so, and we've helped them do it in a proper way. Then we're doing anything the right, right thing. And, and, you know, that's what it's about. It's just about educating and making sure the facts are known and we're still learning still learning amazing things about cotton and indigo still you know and um this whole this whole experience has just just made us all aware a lot a lot more of how you know slavery has been a big part of our in industry as well so it's just 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 it's just how modern day slavery is still with us now but you know mm-hmm. our, our whole industry has been built in this particular way and it's changed changing that mindset it's changing that way of working that's what it's about yeah well, <laughs> hopefully that's the direction we're headed. Yeah, it's a heavy uh, place to <laughs> pin things on. Sorry, I was on a positive thing. But no, um, I, I'm doing lots of amazing talks, which, you know, you guys should listen to. And um, I'm involved a lot with um, ten, Tencel as well. I briefly touched on it, but they're the guys that make fiber from trees. And, you know, and it's been inspiring working for these guys because it's been all about doing really sustainable finishes. So we made an entire collection with nine different mills, so one really Kaihara, Candiani, one or two uh, Italian mills, one or, one or two Pakistani mills as well. And we made a collection based on these fabrics, and we, we made the entire collection. Uh, we, had, we, had, we showed the collection at a Kingpin show, and everyone who came onto the booth thought it was a vintage collection from 1920 hmm. or something. They didn't realize that it wasn't made out of cotton, and they didn't realize that no water had touch, touched it. So... It's just about inspiring people that you can make really futuristic collections. So it's still looking really rigid and still using selvage and all the things that like you and I love. And it can be done in a really modern way and won't damage the planet. And that's what that's what's um, given more lease to life for me, really, as a designer. Nearly 20 years into this game is now it's very exciting knowing that it's a race. It really is a race to design the most sustainable gene. And I know this. Brands like G-Star and everyone else who's been designing quite 
amazing things as well. But there's never been a proper, proper sustainable gene yet. When it comes down to the interlining or the components used inside a gene, to the trims, I think uh, um, there's a, a campaign that the Ella sort of sort of uh, 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 MacArthur campaign of designing a gene that doesn't use rivets, for instance, or metal that can be taken away before it can be like recycled. Mm, so it can now, be recycled. Yeah. It's all about recycling now. It's all about if you can make a garment, it's like like packaging, and you know when you buy any food, the the packaging is fully like recyclable. You know you can recycle it. It's the same thing with garments now. Can we design a garment? that every component can be recycled or easily taken apart that's the next uh, mission and people have achieved it but it just doesn't look that good yet you know so like for me i'm a i'm a proper levi's guy that's one of the first companies i worked for so for me it's like having a gene that doesn't have rivets that's not really a gene anymore that, i'm just one of these old school guys but then you can have embroidered rivets bit like, like wrangler did there are other ways of interpreting a gene that still make it a gene so it's just making it fit into that and at the end of the day if we're using all this, if there was a metal short short shortage tomorrow, why why would we put rivets on jeans? We'll just put bar tacks instead, you know. So yeah. we just need to think forty four five zero one, right? Uh, exactly right. So it's just, the, you know, the painted on arcuates and all that yeah, that we've, we've exactly made do right. in the past. Exactly, you you just make do with the problem you have. You you work around it, and you know you paint it on or you do an embroidered rivet instead. You know, so it's still a jean. You know, as long as it's still ring ring dyed and and it fades. It's still a gene. The moment it doesn't fade anymore and it's not no longer blue, I don't I don't consider it a gene anymore. So yeah, yeah. And the importance of not using polyester thread and things like that. Is it was that's uh... that's the next big issue is not using polyester. Every single sportswear company, it's polyester. Most jeans that people wear, they got stretch in them. You know, even yeah. Candiani have made that new fiber, the um, core core core. Cordova, I think, or Cordova, I can't pronounce it, where it's a bio-based, rubber-based stretch. So now you can make a stretch denim, which is comfortable, and at the end of its life, if it gets thrown away, if it gets thrown away, it will biodegrade into nothing, which is a remarkable, like, remarkable achievement. And it's only been achieved in the last year. Now, now, there's thousands of tons of uh, like petrochemicals and elastic that are in genes all yeah. throughout the world that are just going to sit there for the yeah. next thousand years as they yeah. break down. And then there's a big argument about people like, you know, there's a Fred company I'm working for that, oh, we made this new recycled polyester Fred. And I said to them, look, even though it's recycled polyester, I'm still not going to use it. And I, oh, why not? I mean, it's still polyester. It's like, you don't know exactly where that polyester is coming from. Like, I remember when them Levi's did the whole campaign about plastic bottles. They made jeans from plastic bottles, right? Must have been like eight, nine years ago. And it was a big campaign and it was really quite cool. But in the end, we found out there was companies bottle making companies that were making plastic bottles only to be recycled so it was the most stupidest mm. thing that happened in the end we found out later those companies just making plastic bottles only to be made into chips only to, to recycle them immediately yeah. so it's just meaning it's just stupid it just ended up being a stupid it's thing entirely for the image and the pr yeah, rather than so, the actual sustainability yeah so you're still feeding the machine of polyester the the goal is to not use it anymore and to cut it off like even i was speaking to someone and you know, a big argument and I'm coming into, I'm now thinking like this now, a real fun, real fundamental way is like, should we be even using cotton anymore? Now I love cotton, but we don't need to use it to, to be honest, even if we stopped using it tomorrow, we could still recycle all the other cotton that we've got. You've been to recycling plants. You've seen it. We can recycle all the cotton that we've got left over. We can, we can treat it in a way that it's still in a nice color. It still behaves nicely. It's still quite strong. I've seen 100% recycled garments now. Normally, you can only get 20 or 30% of the recycled element on the weft. 
Now they've put it in the warp and made it more 60%, 80%, fully recycled that still have the strength of a normal f- fabric. So mm-hmm. there's no excuses, to be honest, to be sustainable now. There really isn't. And anyone that says, oh, it's hard to be sustainable, it's too expensive. No, there are, if more people use hemp, if more people use recycle, the cost will come, come, come down. And then we don't have to use cotton anymore. But I love cotton. But it's it's hot. It's very. Um, it's a very sad thing that I'm saying. But we probably don't need to use it any anymore. There's many companies who are now experimenting on non-cotton concepts because they know that it is the future, really, to not use cotton. So and to to slowly walk away from it from all the consumption of water. And yes, you you do have companies like BCI, and they're very important companies that go around ginners and big fabric, um, big uh, cotton people and regulate how much water they're using and they give them like certificates so you know you know even andrew olar said in a conference uh, a couple of months ago in a um a transformers conference that only 0.5 percent not even one percent 0.5 percent of all cotton is actually um what's the term again is actually um the 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 cotton that's recycled or sustainable organic organic that's that's the word only 0.5 five 0.5 i'm surprised it's that high honestly all these companies like zara and all these fast fashion companies are saying that we use organic cotton it's all bullshit it can't be it can't be true because if a zara they could use it for like one small percentage of one collection and they say oh we have like uh, organic cotton in our range i remember when i worked at vf and i was at timberland for nearly four years the amount of buying power they had if they decided to only go with bci they would change only five percent of world consumption of cotton five percent that was a figure from 10 years ago it might be higher higher now so that's how much buying power they have only five percent that's a vf and that, that includes lee wrangler timberland north north face you name it that's uh, uh, actually combined so the likes of primarks targets asdas the most jeans that are sold are actually the ones sold in supermarkets you know the ones sold in that in, walmart and in walmart uh... and tk maxx and they're the things that are selling sh- bucket loads. And if we can influence those designers and those buyers to try and go to organic or try and use a hemp instead, we would change the landscape overnight. It's like when McDonald's decided to use, decided to use salads or make salads as an option. They became the biggest uh, importers of tomatoes or buyers of tomatoes o- overnight. If we can just change mm-hmm. these bigger corporations to say, hey, guys, maybe 20% or 30% of what you're doing should be using hemp instead. We would fundamentally change the landscape of some of these countries that their water tables are completely screwed up. They can't grow food because cotton in general, cotton can only be grown on soil that food can be grown on. Hemp is different. It can be grown practically anywhere. It can be grown on really crap soil as well, but cotton, it's a very, uh, it's a plant that needs lots of care and lots of food and lots of, lots of like nutrients. Hence why we use, use it the same fields that we grow food food on so yeah mm. sorry an- another downer how can we end it so it's more positive for you what other <laughs> questions did you have uh, i've been ranting on for so long i don't oh, know we, we've gotten through pretty much everything that i uh sent over earlier that mm-hmm. uh yeah i mean we've had quite a thorough discussion here that i think has jumped on a lot of different aspects of the industry that aren't really talked about all that often which yeah. is why i was excited to have you on in the first place oh, but, any, um, i've got a real a real opinion but um, it's, it's, it's you know, but it, <laughs> yeah. it, it comes it comes from experience. That's all it does, you know. And I I respect everyone, and I do have a lot of arguments with people about it. And I remember I had a big argument recently with someone. I said to them, you know, 
this country or this region should stop, stop growing cotton. They should just grow food. And they go, but more than they rely on cotton. Their whole industry is cotton. They can't grow to other, other crops. And it's a bit like Afghanistan when, they, when the British and the Americans started convincing them to stop growing poppy seeds and grow other things. It's a very hard thing to wean them, on, wean them off something else. Or, yeah. you know, it's a very difficult subject. It's, it's all about In a globalized economy. marketplace. Yeah, they can buy more food if they grow the cotton. Right. But uh, it's going to put the people at the bottom of their economic system, like always are going to be starving because they can't eat cotton. Yes. But, um, yeah, you know, so hemp. That's... Hemp, yeah. Please, let's talk about hemp. Let's talk about hemp. Hemp is unbelievable. Like, I've been researching hemp probably for the last year. I remember doing a research paper about it as a student when I was 16 years old about hemp. And I came to the conclusion back then, this is more than 25 years ago, whatever, that uh, we shouldn't it shouldn't be like... Uh, uh, decriminalized this is my this is my conclusion i i came up as a 16 year old kid after interviewing mm-hmm. policemen and, and and like drug addicts but it's a different subject now it's more because hemp and cannabis sativa they're very much different like they, they're painted with the same brush really so mm-hmm. they're very much two different strains from the same plant hemp's remarkable it's been around for ten thousand years or longer it's one of the earliest fibers that man actually cultivated we used it earlier than cotton there's lots of evidence of that uh, they found it everywhere from like sort of like Met, sort of from like Iraq in like sort of, Met, sort of Mesopotamia. Every known, even like the Indus Valley region to Egyptians, all used hemp. You know, they, it's known for its strength, of course, and it's known for its loads of properties. It's known for taking care of the soil. It only needs three to four months to grow, rather than hemp needs eight to nine. It's just it doesn't make any sense why we haven't been using it a lot. In it, the hemp last takes um, three to four months to grow versus cotton that takes eight to nine. Yes. As, exactly right. It's half the amount of time. Uh, the mm. amount of 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 the amount of the fiber you can produce from hemp from like one square block, if you compared it to cotton, it's like nearly triple the amount. You know. So and you know with with, with hemp you can use the entire plant from the roots to the seeds to the to the leaves, of course, and then you get the main fiber from the stalk. And um, you know it's just it's just remarkable. I don't, don't really after researching it for so long and doing various projects on it and still doing two big big projects on it still. Uh, they're going to come out this year or next year. Um, it doesn't make any sense why we haven't been using it more. But it, it, obviously, I know now why. It's because of the cotton people. They big propaganda, mm-hmm. big big smear campaign in the 1920s. It started much earlier. Earlier, Reefer of course. madness. <laughs> it, 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 it started a lot more earlier because obviously cotton was to do with the slave trade. You know, cotton was it was more about you could get slaves to pick the cotton. It was a very the, the price that you were paying for cotton was a very um, it wasn't actually the true cost of it because the slaves were practically mm. free. Yeah, subsidized by unpaid subsidized. and forced labor. So, yeah, so um, it was forced labor. So yeah, you would get the cotton at a certain price, but actually if you did the costing of it, it would be super duper expensive. But because they're using slaves, they got, got it for practically nothing. So, and then because of that, and it had, uh, go on another 56, 60, you know, go on another 100 years or so, then of course the whole smear campaign happened in the 1920s and then it got it got like it made it got illegal they basically made it illegal to grow hemp and and cannabis sativa in one stroke and it's only recently especially in america it's opened up in the last couple of years and in europe as well and now in the uk it's going to come about so hemp is the next big thing in the denim world and it's very exciting because of what we're finding and, out about it and how it behaves you go into wind. uh oh go ahead I was no, no, say, okay. You go into much greater, greater depth in this so that you've got a like two hour webcast that yeah. uh, goes into all of like hemp and uh, history and its use as a fiber and how it can be used in denim. 
in it's, the future and sort of the future. Okay, of... I'm not. I'm not paid by any hemp like sort of sort of sort of a lobbyist. I'm not at all associated with anyone. But it's just it's just very alarming to me that why haven't we been using this more? You know, it doesn't make any sense now because of COVID. It's even more relevant. It's like wow, uses less water, doesn't take much time, it spins really well. It, it doesn't make any sense. And then you know, then you find out the more historical side of it and the smear campaigns. And yeah, and the, I did a two hour webinar. I actually did um. Uh, a panel discussion about it maybe about five six months ago in a trade show called uh, blue zone in munich and um it was a really amazing panel and i was just a bit disappointed it wasn't recorded because most panels are recorded but i think they were i think they were probably probably like recording some panel about influencers or something stupid like that and i got really frustrated again mm-hmm. they'd rather do they'd rather record the panel about influencers than recording about a panel about sustainability and denim i didn't make any sense to me at the time yeah. anyway so i had an opportunity because obviously because i i teach and many students were asking me do you mind doing the panel talk or doing it for some students or you know and i said to them well if i'm going to just do this whole panel talk again if I'm going to recreate it again, let me get a few more people involved. Let me get some cotton experts to this time help me let's have a discussion. Let's get some other amazing super duper designers from Miles Johnson to, to Marlin, who worked for loads of high-end brands to really like cream of the crop, you know, and I literally, I'm quite lucky. My little black book is, is um, I, when I ask people sometimes to talk, most of the time they say yes. So I'm a, I'm a very honored uh, position that I can pull it, pull it together within a few days. So within a few days, I'd organize a panel talk. And yeah, it's one of the most successful talks I, I, I did actually, uh, webinars. And I had 12 questions. I thought it would only be an hour talking. It ended up being two hours of talking. And, um, very and that's available for free on YouTube. Available for free. Yeah. I didn't monetize it. I, I do do panels and do do talks that are paid, of course. You know, I need to earn money. But this particular one, because the I had already done this panel before, it was some of it was already available and various people have written about it. I thought I can't really charge people. It's just knowledge like this. It can't be. And if everyone disagrees to give up their time, let's just educate people as much as we can to where we are right now. So it's I got um, cotton experts. I've got hemp experts to talk. I've got one of the most important mills, Orta Turkish Mill, who who are doing some of the most advanced but denim de- denim developments in hemp to talk on the panel. And I asked them all really serious questions about the positives and neg- negatives. And in the end, we all think we all became hemp 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 lovers but um even the even the cotton mm-hmm. expert the cotton expert on the panel decided to say yeah it was starting to come you. around it was coming around I, I got her on the panel to be a bit controversial but she wasn't she was playing ball she wasn't in an argumentative move she was agreeing with half the things we were talking about but um oh. but you can't deny the facts that's the this that's the thing it doesn't yeah. it, everyone's waking up to, waking up to it now but no it, it's all for free you can find it on blue lens it's um it's a video channel that um the guys at 10 cell run which i help put together and my own denim history educational channel as well but and you guys have also kindly put it on your week weekly roundup which is very kind of you to do uh, thank yeah, you and for, we'll link that in the description as well um super. for this episode and mm. um yeah is there anything else that you'd like to plug Oh no! Or anything no, else that you're up to at the moment? I want to thank, thank you guys for always being always being relevant. You know, there's so many. Yeah, <laughs> well, no, but there's lots of. Oh, thank you. Of, we try. But there's lots of denim blogs, and there's lots of people talking about it. But all they seem to do is re- regurgitate other people's stuff. And you guys actually make articles yourselves. You have write copy. You do all the research yourselves. You get proper specialists to talk about certain things. You know, you guys have got exclusives on so many great things that you guys. And, and thank you also. For doing that it's, it's a lot of work you guys do and you know, i know you do a lot of it for free obviously you guys get paid in some respect but you do a lot of it because you you enjoy it and you like giving back mm. and you like 
to, to just give back and like to be talking about these things and educating people. And it's very important that you guys are doing it. And I, I, I applaud you for it. And thank you. Oh, for thank it. you. Yeah. And I really appreciate you saying that. And yeah, thank you for taking the time and coming on. I uh, would love to have you back again on sometime soon. And hopefully we can see some of these uh, advances in hemp and like uh, I think I need better little, working conditions come in the, uh, in the future. I, yeah. I think I need to do a little fabric report for you guys. Cause obviously it's very difficult to, uh, I think I did one for you before where I just went through all the best Japanese mills and talked about what they were doing. Oh, yeah. I, might be I was just reading up on that in preparation I, for this yeah, of all the different things from I, Amhot and Toyoshima. Yeah, and... yeah. But maybe we need to do another one again of maybe some of the really good mills that we've been consulting for and some of the advancements that have been happening because a lot of them, they don't come to the, inten- the attention of, of the public, I'll be honest with you. They they only find out about it through uh, video or something that the uh, Levi's or someone will do where they talk about regen or I think like uh, Kings of Indigo did this regen project where they used um, 50% cotton and 50% like refriber, which is recycled cotton and tencel. So no cotton, no virgin cotton was used. And But this particular fabric came from a mill that was called, Can- called Candiani. And this particular fabric we used in, I used this fabric. I was one of the first designers to use it on a concept collection when I designed for Tencel. Ten, ten, ten but there's loads of amazing things that I'm involved with that I'm very happy to share and give you guys exclusivity on for your readers if they especially if they're interested to know what advancements in denim that have been going on from foam dyeing to new sustainable ways of washing maybe we need to have a little i don't know if you're doing that i'm sure you are but maybe maybe you could talk we've done like little things on advancements but i'd love to have something that's more cohesive uh connecting all the things that have sort of happened in the last few years um uh, uh, and yeah, a way of looking at the bigger picture because it's sort of been like oh there's foam dyeing here there's this new spinning method here but to really yeah, like, bring it together and how this is affecting the end consumer, yeah, we haven't really done something like that in a while. With Levi's and their FLX, you know, laser laser technology, you know, the Levi's um, Future Lab, what's what's called FLX. But basically, they have they use like Genealogia, the, the laser guys in Spain and Valencia, and they they made these Pacific. They basically made it in a way that it's more user friendly, and now you'll be able to have these laser machines in stores. So in theory, customers could come in, pick a wash that they like, um, change the levels of the whisker pattern, and within a few hours later, they could walk out the shop with with that pant. Or you would get it, you do it online on an app, you design your wash, you would pay the money, and they'll be it'll be like DHL to you within 48 hours or 24 hours. These things are all available now, and it's literally is the future. Customization literally is the way that things are things are going now, and you don't need to have 10,000 pieces of the same mid mid blue wash anymore you just have to make the raw garment and then let the customer decide how they want it and they let them customize it and then that, that's it so the future really is like that and that way there's less wastage as well there's no landfill anymore you know it's more about staples and many people have been figuring this out it's like not being um fitting into a formula not having uh following the calendar anymore having 10 collections a year 12 collections a year it's just like maybe having two collections a year of basics that can be customized you know i don't know so many people are thinking like this because of covid because they just want to re- reduce the landfill was it one third of all garments never even sees the, never even the customer even touches it goes straight into a land landfill which is shocking yeah. so it's like we're, we're producing way too much so it's being clever now about it and obviously people need to live and people need to earn money i get it so it's just being clever about it and in a, in a more sustainable way uh, sorry yeah. me ranting again oh no oh good <laughs> coming soon to a heddles near you <laughs> any time anytime you want me to write this article i'm sure i'll find time time to do it 
So yeah, um, it doesn't take me well, long. Once I get going, it's just a few days work and it's done. I appreciate it. Yeah, we'd love to have that on soon. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks so much, uh, Moisen. And uh, yeah, we'll talk again real soon. Thank you so much for your time. You've been very, very kind. So that's our show for today. Thank you for sticking with us all the way through this very long and what started off a little bit depressing first episode. I want to thank Albert for coming on and talking business and uh, Morrison for our lively discussion on really all things denim. You can find all the links that we talked about uh, for both in the description uh, for this episode. So one last reminder to check out the Heddle shop and see those new sandals and leather goods from Waltzing Matilda. The code for 10% off is blowout, B-L-O-W-O-U-T, just like the show. Also, if you have a question or comment about the show you'd like us to discuss, we are going to be answering weirder questions soon. So please email us at blowout at heddles.com. And uh, one last thing is a tradition that we started uh, doing at the end of uh, the shows the last time around was to close out with a couple of minutes of recording from a factory workshop or just some other place where things are made. So today we're going to leave you uh, with two minutes of a hydraulic press die cutting out face mask pieces here in Denver, Colorado. And remember, drink more water, Black Lives Matter, wear a mask, and we'll see you next week.